0: Welcome back to the Aviation RC Noob Podcast. You found us. My name is Joe. And I'm Matt. We're here to be with you along your journey and to share our experiences in RC Aviation. If you have any questions, thoughts, or want to share a flight story, hit us up at aviationrcnoob at gmail.com. Now, buckle in.
1: Let's take off. Welcome back. We're here with Terry Dunn, and we're going to talk about aircraft design. Um, Terry Dunn, uh, welcome to our show. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right, great. Um, Terry, if you don't know what Terry's been up to, he is involved heavily in the RC, I'll call it, industry. Um, He's written a ton of articles for lots of different publications. We'll get into details on that. He's designed multiple planes that... Um, and they're not just like standard, um, let me make it on the Mustang kind of plane. They're something that most people look at and kind of go, I don't think I want to even try that. Um, that's the desired effect I'm going for with most of them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And which is one of the reasons why we called you up and asked you to come on the show to talk about that, because to, to design one of those planes to get them to fly well, you have to go a little bit deeper than the average bear on a design. And that's kind of what, and and that that could be a myth, and that's what we're going to talk about.
2: (laughs) Yeah, we'll peel that onion in a bit. Exactly. Um,
1: (laughs) So as we always do, um, we are going to talk about our fly stories. We're going to talk about, uh, go through some of the listener comments, talk about uh, what we're going to do with the community um, in the next couple of weeks here. I think it's coming up pretty quick. It'll be quicker than we realize. Mm -hmm. And reminder that it's Halloween uh, we're gonna have a Halloween episode in a little bit, and we'd love to hear some scary stories that you might have in your back pocket, uh, like a confessionary time, uh, I guess. Um, just kind of like a public service announcement, kind of don't do what we do. Um, and then uh, you know, if we have any airplane histories, uh, we'll, we'll cover that, and then we'll talk to Terry about what he's been, what he's been up to with uh, life RC and designing aircraft. So, all right, uh, why don't we start off with our fly stories? So. Uh, so, Terry, what about you? Would you like Have me you, to start? Yeah, I would love that. Uh, basically, what we usually do okay. is we we talk about what we flew and anything we've been doing in the last couple of weeks in RC.
2: Okay. Um, I actually did not get to go flying last weekend, which was a shame because I live in Buffalo, New York, and we had some pretty good weather up here. But uh, I was actually working on an article that I had to uh, get finished. So, deadlines are deadlines, and it got in the way of me going out flying. Um, mm-hmm. But Darn it. my previous time flying was... At the Neat Fair. Oh, so yeah. Are you neat. guys familiar with that event at all? I am not. Well,
1: only through listening to your podcast and knowing that I okay. live in New England, and so that uh, kind of, I grew up in New England, and so that kind of said, hey, I should have known about this. So what is <laughs> Neat Fair, for those who don't know? Um, it, in a nutshell,
2: it's an electric-only event. It's been around, I think this was the 21st year, and when it started, electrics were still kind of a novelty. And so Mm NEET stands for Northeast Electric Aircraft Technology Fair. Mm -hmm. So it was intended as a showcase for people who are into electric planes, which was still kind of a a lunatic fringe of the RC (laughs) community back then. Um, (laughs) uh, For those people to come together, show what they're doing, share the triumphs they've done. And uh, a lot of the companies that were making RC equipment for electrics, uh, opportunity for them to come together and show their stuff off. And so it happens in the Catskill Mountains. I think it used to be somewhere else in the early days. Don't don't quote me on that. But now it happens in the Catskill Mountains at this campground that's in a valley, and it's got a full-scale grass airstrip there and a stream that runs alongside it. And there's a cast of characters that's been going there forever. And uh, so there's a lot of a lot of history there and a lot of uh, people that this is their vacation. They look forward to it every year. Yeah. And I've only been going for about five years. Uh, I've got a group of friends that have been going for a while and they kind of introduced me to that when I moved to the Northeast. And so I've been going there and it's, uh, some people go the whole week. I typically go just for the weekend, but really you go, you hang out, you fly airplanes and mm-hmm. you know the technology of electrics is kind of stabilized a little bit. It's not on the, you know, arc that it used to be on, but right. there's still always a lot of neat stuff there, a lot of very innovative people there with some cool airplanes, so yeah. there's never a shortage of anything to see. Yeah. If anything, I've run out of time. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so so I was there, um, and I took a, a few things, and for people who you haven't talked about, um, that I do a, a podcast with a couple of my friends, but my podcast that I do RC around but we've talked about the neat fair. So I don't want to cross over too much about things I mentioned there. But sure. one thing I had at the neat fair that I didn't talk about on the show, it was this quick little project that I did. And I saw a thing on Facebook where somebody had created an RC version of this rubber band free flight design um, mm-hmm. called the stringless wonder. And basically it's made out of balls of sticks covered in tissue. But the idea was that it looks like a kite, but it's a rubber band powered kite. Okay. And so I'm like, Oh, that would be a fun thing to do in foam board. So I had some waterproof foam board. I sketched it out and I cut it out and added a motor to it and a couple servos, and I test flew it at the NEAT fair and it flew great. So now I'm going to show you guys and only you can see it right now, but so this is it. But okay. you can see the kite heritage of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a it's
1: diamond, a diamond shaped like you know, like a traditional kite. But in the yeah, top the- side of it is a motor, and in the back is a yep. little fin.
2: Yep, and that's it. And I'm thinking about hanging off a little tail, like crate paper or something like that. Sure. But it's uh, and it's kind of like a nutball. Yeah. Uh, just a simple, fine wing with dihedral on the ends.
0: Yeah, um, I was going to ask if it pulled, if it pulled inspiration from, or if the nutball pulled inspiration from it.
2: Um, I don't know. That's a chicken and egg question. But I think the original design <laughs> for this probably dates back to the '70s. So I would have to think that it it predates the nutball. Yeah, I mean, I know the, the
1: nutball design has been around way before flight test made it foam board, but yeah, there's lots of variations on the theme too. So, so the, to say. the neat thing about that, that you have there is that there's a big <laughs> hole gaping hole in the center of it. Um, right. Almost like the center third of the craft is missing.
2: Is there, yep. what's the function to that? You're only the 50th person to ask me that question. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> so I, I read the original article on the free flight design and he doesn't mention it. He, the, person who designed it wrote the article and he just says, here's how you make that hole in the middle, but didn't say why. And when I was designing this, I kind of calculated what the wing area would be and what it was going to weigh. And like, I don't know why that hole is there, but I'm going to have plenty of wing area even without it. So what the heck, let's just cut it out and see. And turns out when you're flying it, it's actually a great visual reference. So it it was neat to have a big hole in my airplane as I was flying it. So I'll keep it there. (laughs) <laughs> but I'm thinking about, I've still got the piece that I cut out. I might just tape it on one day and, and see if it flies in differently with it. But for mm-hmm. now, it's, a, it's an interesting talking point about an already, what I think is an interesting plane.
1: Yeah, sure is. And it so, looks like it's a quick one to build, too.
2: Yeah, it's a single sheet of foam board. And I just uh, blew up the dimensions to, to fit the maximum width. So it's 20 inches wide mm-hmm. and uh, not quite 30 inches long. So I could build it with one sheet. And a few hours, yeah. just a couple pushrods, three channels. So it's about as simple as an airplane can be. And uh, yeah, it, it flies really well. It, it, uh, it flies really slow, <laughs> but uh, it also has enough rudder authority. It'll do rolls and stuff like that. Which, so, is, great,
1: yeah. which is great for any indoor situation. You want it to go slow because you'll eat up all your space faster than you can. Otherwise, you're just turning left the whole time.
2: Right. And unfortunately, um, I almost had to turn you guys down for being on the show because this is happening on a Monday night. And in my area, the local parks department offers up one of their soccer indoor facilities for flying. Mm. Um, but I got behind the, the curve and I wasn't able to sign up in time. So I'm missing that right now. There's people indoor flying in my area in a very nice facility. And this would be perfect for it. Yes. Yeah, sure but will.
0: uh yeah, but I'm here talking with you jokers. <laughs> I, I hate you're missing that but definitely glad uh, you're here yeah, with us uh, yeah. I'll take the trade
2: All right, appreciate so, it. And, so this is uh, something I want to experiment more with maybe build another one uh, a little bit wider or with, without the cutout or something just change it around a little bit and see kind of what effect those changes have on it and just experiment around a design that I already know works in the basic sense and I'll tweak yeah. it a little bit here and there, and see what happens. So yeah, that's my plan for it, and uh, we'll see where it goes.
1: Well, I'll be listening to your podcast to see when you put the center section in, just see how differently <laughs> it flies. I'd love to hear what happens because it's okay. essentially moving it to from one big long wing foil section is effectively what'll what'll happen to the airflow. It's broken when the section's gone in the middle. It's now two separate airfoils, right?
2: um effectively yeah, that's a good question i thought about that is there any flow going through that hole over the top that's affecting how it lifts yeah i don't know yeah so that's that's the fun part right figuring this stuff out yeah
1: that is kind of why we get into <laughs> it right cool yeah nice is there anything else uh, that you want to talk about that you've done in the hobby
2: um no there's other stuff going on i just had a friend of mine come by here last week and he dropped off a bunch of stuff that i bought on a facebook sale mm-hmm. somebody was selling i guess their father's stuff their father had passed away had a bunch of rc stuff yeah um so i bought it sight unseen a few states away and a friend of mine uh who's actually a professional pilot but doesn't fly rc okay. he was pretty close to where the sale was so i'm like huh i think i can maybe broker a deal here yeah so uh, <laughs> my friend went and picked up all the stuff and he's been keeping it in his basement for probably a year now. The original plan was for me to boogie down there and pick up the stuff, but mm-hmm. then COVID happened. And so mm-hmm. the the pickup didn't materialize, but then another friend of mine was passing through that area and was going to be coming by Buffalo. So he grabbed all the stuff and brought it up to me. Okay. So now nice. I've got this uh, big uh, pile, big steaming pile of used RC stuff <laughs> that I'm sorting through. And it's got some neat things in there. Some
1: surprises that I wasn't expecting. Yeah.
2: It'll be fun to see what's salvageable and what's fun to play with.
1: Yeah. That's something we haven't really gotten into yet. Um, looking at swap meets and picking up, I'll call it picking up other people's problems. Um, you know, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> where, where you're laugh. like, it's done. I don't know how well. I hope it's good
2: enough. <laughs> right. Yo, That's know, funny you mentioned that because one of the th- reasons that I bought this lot of airplanes was because it had a a skeleton of a, an old Waco biplane kit in okay. Balsa. and it was the the company's called Pica or Pika. I'm not quite sure how it's mm-hmm. pronounced, but it was kind of the quintessential Waco kit back in the nineties. And it's a fifth scale. So it's 60 inch wingspan on the top, big airplane and lots of people love it. Yeah. So I'm like, Hmm, if I get that, that's probably worth the deal right there. Well, when that showed up, it was not built by a craftsman. You could say. So in effect, <laughs> The Waco is not worth salvaging. But the good news in all that is a lot of the other stuff that I wasn't expecting to be good actually turned out to be really good. So oh, cool. um, nothing was lost there. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, there you yeah. go. Really cool. And uh, I'm really lucky that the sort of stuff that I like the most, a lot of other people don't care about. I really like the brushed motor airplanes from the late 90s and all of the 90s, like the old Kyosho type stuff and the designs from the 80s and 90s when electrics were really in their infancy. Most people don't give a hoot about those. So when they go up for sale, I'm not usually competing with anybody else to get that stuff. So when I find it, uh, I try to pick it up and upgrade it to modern equipment. And so for stuff that flew well back then with brush motors and NICAD batteries. When you get rid of a third the weight and you double the power, they tend to fly really well. So I always have fun upgrading that stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah, back in the days when you were pushing the limits of weight versus power, you know, because you had to do the NICADs which weigh a ton and the motors weren't super efficient like the brushless are now today. And so you're really kind of pushing boundaries.
2: Yeah, so the airplanes had to be designed well to, to operate at that level. So you take a well-designed airplane and then give it some power and shed some weight, and good things happen, and then
1: it flies really well.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. Typically, nice. it's not always a guarantee, but yeah, I've had pretty good luck with that stuff.
1: Nice. That's one of the things I've noticed with uh, reading some of your articles, is that seems to be I picked up on that that that's your that's one of I, your pockets of joy in the hobby.
2: Yeah, I definitely have a theme. Nice.
1: Well, that, speaking of uh, picking up a design and and trying to fix it up, Joe, what have you been working on?
0: Ooh, Matthew, that that segue, like that transition, was. Is it too harsh? <laughs> no, it was good. Sorry, <laughs> I just had to. Sorry,
1: Terry. I just. I was trying to catch up. Had to call I out, out the buttery done.
0: smooth man. <laughs> um. No, so yeah, um, I pulled the old fogey out like we were talking about, and then had to re the tail section. Okay. Um, I, I want to back up a second and say, Terry, thanks for being on the show with us. I kind of let Matthew talk and didn't say a whole lot, but I did want to say thanks for being here. Um, but I pulled the uh, I pulled the old fogey out and got that tail section largely glued back in. Um, it was not quite as simple a repair as I was expecting it to be. I thought I just torn one side, I guess you call that the empennage area. Uh, Terry, basically, I took, I went out flying with my dad and, um, crashed it into a light pole. Um, kind of got the tail section grabbed on it as I was, I had cut power, but it was super windy out, so it just pulled it into it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the, the tail section just kind of bent around. And so I, for whatever reason, I thought it was just the right side of uh, the fuselage back there by the tail that got tore out. But it turns out that rip extended all the way underneath. And so okay. it was just the one side of the, the back end of the fuselage. I was holding that whole tail assembly on, um, so a little, good bit more hot glue and a lot more holding and figuring and thinking about it for a few minutes. Because once, once multiple points have been ripped loose, now there was a lot of twisting and waggle and side to side. I was like, "How am I going to secure this in?" So that's really all I've done or had time to do. I wanted to get the the seat up, uh, wing glued back mm-hmm. on where I'd ripped it off, and start working on the nose section. But that's next up on the bench. I just didn't get a chance to. Okay. Um, and I'll explain briefly. I went camping with my wife this last weekend. Oh, nice! And these two weeks between episodes go by really fast. Well, we um, we've
1: had amazing weather in like the last two weeks. I'm mm-hmm. glad you were able to capitalize on it.
0: It was. We um, I had to borrow the borrow the boat from my with my family and you know get some stuff put together but we we took off on a Friday went out beautiful sunset as we were running stuff across the lake to our uh to our riverside camping spot just out rustic no power uh, took a trans uh, inverter out so I could uh, power her um, her air mattress It have one of those built-in air pumps but other than that that was that was it took the bat the phone backup battery pack but we were out there, just had the old Coleman pump-up lanterns and fireplace cooking s'mores and hot dogs. Coleman stove for some eggs and bacon in the morning. It was just a nice getaway. So. Sounds
1: like bliss to me. Yeah, it sounds yeah. fun.
0: There, there was a moment where I was sitting out there, you know, on the river's edge looking out at it, like, man, if I had the sea duck repaired, and out here. <laughs> I was about to ask.
1: Your wife would have killed you. <laughs>
0: She'd have killed me, but it would have been nice. <laughs> you would have been, you
1: would have had a good time with it. Oh, yeah. yeah that so. that sounded like a, a really perfect trip, and I, it sounds like it was pretty re- restorative for both of you, which I'm happy to
0: do. It was appreciate. really good. So I'm hoping in uh, I'm hoping in the next two weeks I can get that seat up repaired and uh, maybe not get it in the air, but at least get the pokey back in the air.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And then I do want – I think I'll put the um, – uh, the Aura Five, um, uh, flight assist board. I think I'm gonna put that in the Sea Duck, uh, and just hold off on the Corsair for a while yet. Okay. Um, but go ahead and put the Aura Five into the 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 duck, so I can get it back up near, uh, and have a good flight with it. So.
1: Terry, what do you think about the Aurora Five boards? The uh, the you know, I'll call it level assist and and that kind of stuff. <laughs>
2: Um, I think it depends on the day you ask me. Um, <laughs> I, I think my most recent experience with that was with the Flux Innovations Piranha, oh, which yeah. it comes with a, a version of that. Yep. And I would say for normal flying, it doesn't need it, but it's got the features with launch assist where it makes launching that, that thing no problem at all. And yep. so for that, that's worth it right there.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I felt the same way with I have one. Because I saw it zipping around at Flight Fest, and I'm like, I gotta get one of uh, these things. How much is it? Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm getting it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah,
2: they're a lot of fun, and I think in that kind of application, where that board is really pushing the limits of what a normal person can do with that kind of performance at their fingertips, yeah, I, I think it's a huge benefit.
1: And um, what about a beginner?
2: In, um, I think there it's a trade off because. Uh, yes, it can help you to get more comfortable with flying. It can help save you when you make mistakes. But at the same time, I've seen a lot of beginners paint themselves into a corner with one because the way it corrects for you is not necessarily always intuitive. If you mm. don't understand the way that board's going to react and what it's doing to the airplane, then you're just as lost as you were before. Mm. Um, so you're trading off learning, spending the time learning to fly the airplane with learning about the board and programming the board and investing the time it takes to make that board helpful to you. Um, for some people, that's probably a better trade off for other people. They might be better off the other way. I don't know. Um, but it's not a slam dunk. I'll put it that way. So I think for certain people, it's a great benefit for other people. They might be better off without it. This with a less complexity in the model. So it's a personal decision that probably you don't know the answer that's better for you until you've tried both ways. Unfortunately.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, to your point, we'll see. It's, I've had plenty of flight, plenty of maiden flights or the first couple flights that I get, seem to go well, I get comfortable, and then suddenly I dump it. Um, So this is not intended to be a long term uh, fly my plane with it nonstop. It's a, Mm -hmm. let me get up there and get comfortable with this plane and kind of see what it's doing. Uh, especially like the Duck or the Corsair, they're just models I'm not accustomed to. And then be able to flip it off to say, all right, let me let me try my hand and then have it as a backup recovery. Mm-hmm. And what I don't want to do is become dependent on it, like you say. Yep. Um, so. Yeah,
2: and I think once you get over that initial learning curve of knowing how to set it up and work for you and whatever the application might be, then yeah, mm-hmm. at that point it does become a benefit for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I just know that you have gone through a number of reviews of planes with AS3X and that kind of stuff, safe technology. And, and yeah. I know listening to you on, on your show that, it, you know, I just know you have enough experience to be able to say, Hey, this is my opinion. And again, um, I appreciate uh, your input on that because we, we really haven't used much of it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, They're getting better. I think initially there was a huge difference between, for instance, the uh, safe models, For anything from Horizon that has safe. Mm -hmm. As I recall, the earlier ones, there was a big difference between when you had safe enabled and not enabled. So you might have a Warbird. When you have safe enabled, I'm bending the sticks just trying to turn the thing around to get around the pattern. But then when you turn it off, the thing becomes really aerobatic. So there's this huge gap between on and off. And I always felt like they should be a little bit closer. Mm -hmm. And then a more recent model, like the uh, 1.5-meter FW-190, I felt like they're getting there. I had the safe on, and it does all the things that safe does, but it still feels like it's a fighter that's um, capable of doing things that only fighters should do. So, yeah, I think we're getting closer to where it should have been all along.
1: Okay.
0: Well, that's going to be the end of what I've been working on. Um, Matthew, looking at the looking at the sheet here, it looks like you got quite a bit. I,
1: well, it's I, I do and I don't. Um, really, the the bulk of what I've done was do a little bit of work on the quickie and get that to um, I put in the electronics and I put up the control lines and I was going to take um, I was going to borrow a receiver from another plane that I was about that I was going to test. I'll talk about that in a second, and um, so why don't I get onto it? And that's the reason why I haven't done a maiden with that one yet. Um, partly, okay. in 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 part of that, it's because the beans out in the field, they're really mean, and I'm not sure I'm ready to to try the quickie in some mean beans. Uh, I know for sure that if I don't, uh, if it doesn't take off right, I will lose it for sure. And uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, If you're going to name that airplane, I think Mean Beans is a fitting. (laughs) No, no, that will be the name of the plane that I lost in the Mean Beans. Um, So I went out with the Magician, which is basically a Dollar Tree foam board version of the Sorcerer, an old balsa plane from 1980s. Uh, There's a guy on our forums who has posted a lot of times that he went out to the field to fly. And he's got these beautiful balsa planes. He flies. And in the corner is this beautiful you know, 92 inch balsa glider that I'm just sitting there like, I want to see that fly so bad. And every time he's like, no, it's too windy. Nope. I I can't. I don't don't think so. And I'm like, well, and we were talking and this is for Terry mostly, but as I told him, I said, look, if I design a Dollar Tree foam board version of it, will you build that and fly it? Because uh, I want to see this thing fly. So he said, Sure, challenge, uh, I challenge you to do that. You wouldn't be able to do that in a week. And I said, I'll show you. So <laughs> by the end of the week, I had a set of plans ready, and I was already putting one together for for myself. Um, mm-hmm. And I had gotten out and f- flew the maiden flight, basically did a, a lazy circle to the left, and I ended up having to bank it and let it dive into the beans because it would not turn to the right at all. Oh, I think I saw that video. Did you post something I, on YouTube? I might have, that? yeah. I, okay. I, I posted two videos, um, but yeah, I think I posted that one to, to, um, definitely posted to YouTube. I'm not sure if I put in flight test fans or something like that, but basically you did a, did a lazy loop and it was beautiful. It looked so graceful. I was so ready to, to try it again and, uh, just nope. Um, so I repaired it from there and I sent it off again. Um, and it continued to do a lazy left circle. And I did one flight and I had to bring it down and it kind of lofted into the beans. I said, okay, I threw and I did a couple, like maybe, maybe I need to get the throws a little bit more extreme to the right and maybe that'll do it and make sure that the tail's as sturdy as I'm hoping it is. Right. I threw it up and it did three. I did one lazy circle to the left. And as it came around, it started to actually turn to the right. Again, this is only three channels, so there's no mm-hmm. ailerons to get it to to rotate back around, which would have fixed all the problems, um, or at least corrected for the problem that would have fixed it. Um, and it, it came it would around. Have them up,
2: what was that? It would have covered up the problems. It, it
1: absolutely would have covered up the problems, <laughs> but it would have been able to be flyable. So uh, I would have appreciated that part, knowing that it's not doing what it's supposed to, but at least I'm not going to lose it, right? Uh, so anyway, it went to the left and I got it to go like halfway around. And then I had to go left again and then it wouldn't go back. Right. So I did another three sixty or two and then I, you know, landed in the beans kind of right on top. And so I was like, Oh shoot. So I go on and get it. It looks like there's no damage because it's lofting on top. So it's doing fine. So then I throw it up one more time and it, you know, I think I made the corrections and it, continue to do that left. And I'm thinking that there's a twist in the wing or I don't even think so though, but there's something going on with aerodynamics where one side is lifting more than the other and it's making a gentle bank or because I think the tail surfaces were parallel and it wasn't a rudder issue. I think it was more a a imbalanced loft issue of some sort. So off it goes to the it does a full circle and then I bring it left again on the second loop and it starts going off. Like I'm not, I'm not saving it. So I bring it out past the road, past the fence because I don't want to land it into the fence. And I land on the other side of the access road into the beans on the other side. Mm -hmm. And then I go, Oh, and it, and it goes down like nose down in. So I'm thinking, okay, cool. The least the tail will be sticking up because it's an 82 inch plane. It's got a 40 inch tail section. It should be sticking up should be easy enough. to find. Yeah, should be. Right. I look out, there ain't nothing. <laughs> there ain't nothing at all. And it's now, of course I start my endeavors usually at like six o'clock and it's getting darker earlier. So it's like seven o'clock and I'm looking around going, I've only got about a half hour to look for this thing before mm-hmm. and I start getting out there and I'm walking around in this, I'm doing the high steps. Meanwhile, like my back had been, I pulled something to my back earlier that week. So Moving around wasn't the most comfortable thing, and I'm having to high-step it, you know, across the beans. Otherwise, I'm, and I'm literally, it's untying my shoes. It's trying to grab hold of them. I lost <laughs> them in the beans for a second, had to go find it, you know. It was awful. So I'm doing circuits, and I'm going back and forth and back and forth, and I'm, you know, 45 minutes, and I can't find it. I can't find this 82-inch white foam board plane that should be pretty close to the top. It's got to be. Nope. Not at all. So I then go home. I said, shoot. All right. Um, And then I think I I had the Texan with me. So I picked up the Texan and I just, I wanted some sort of moderate success. And I just took it and I just flew like three circuits. Like it was nothing. It was easy. It was gentle to fly. It was fun. I could do acrobatics. I could do lazy. I could do kind of fast. I could do dive bombs. It was great. Had a little bit of that. Landed it. Said, all right. I'll have to come back. I'm going to get some FPV. I'm going to attach it to this this Texan. I'm going to go back out tomorrow.
0: And well, I'm glad you had a backup plane to be able to like kind of bring up that experience from I lost the plane to I still had some good flying.
1: Well, let's just say that was a that was the plan from the beginning, just in case. <laughs> <laughs> I've had that issue before, and I'm like, you know, I need to have something. Um, but I was pleased mm-hmm. though. That I mean, the the magician that that sorcerer, the balsa, you know, the foam board version of the the sorcerer. It flew beautifully. Like I love the way it flew. And if I could get it to fly level and knock a gentle bank to the left, it would have been delightful. I'd have been out there for as long as the light would have let me. And um, I knew that if I can get this thing to fly straight, I'm looking forward to going out and spending you know hours because I've you, you don't need much juice to get it up there. And it strikes me as a glider that'll be up there for a long while. Now, one of the reasons uh, why, you know, the old fashioned electrics were great for gliders, because all you need them is to get them up there and right. occasionally get them back. And you could easily spend a half hour on some pretty poor batteries. Um, yeah. So I went up the next day, I took my um, well, dusty crop hopper, the AT6, I think it, right. it has like a flight test built one with like a little canopy you can pull off. And that's where I put my FPV. And it's like permanently in there with a little wire that hooks up to the. <laughs> the receiver to get power. I was like, okay, cool, boop. It's an all-in-one. So I took that off, and I took the canopy of the T6 Texan off, and I plopped that on top and strapped rubber bands around it, and off I went. <laughs> now, you didn't tell me about that. I, I, got, I, I thought I took a picture of it. I, I did. I know I took a picture of it. I thought I shared a picture of it. And, and it may not look too much different because um, Sam uh, gave me an orange-striped uh, T6 Texan. So right. the markings on it are orange, and my dusty crop hopper, the canopy is orange, so it sort of fits in. Anyway, it so I and and this is how good this flies. It's probably the third flight I've ever had on it, and I put the FPV footage in there. I, I got everything hooked up. I put on my goggles. I had a, a patch and I had a, a mushroom antenna so I could get locally and at least one way really good. Um, and then I kind of turned around to where it's supposed to be in the beans. And I, you know, found where the wind was, and I, I tossed the Texan with the, you know, goggles right on my head, I got it up just a little bit enough to know I was good. Um, Pulled it down, and I just flew around like I owned it. Um, Which was, which was neat. Um, Because that's the first time in a long while I've done first person view flying with a plane that I could trust. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I did a pattern around the the field just to make sure I had everything set, right. Everything was behaving like it's supposed to. And then I went across, across the line behind the fence, behind the access road and started doing pattern work uh, across the beans. And then I realized I'm like, it's analog. So it's not the best footage. I'm like, you know what I'm not getting is I need an overhead, like an overhead. So I started climbing and I was doing dive bombs and I was doing big (laughs) loops and I was doing rollover, you know, uh, rolls and kind of like, dive bombing down into the stuff. And I'm like, I don't want to lose it in the beans. (laughs) So I'm being (laughs) conservative enough. And, you know, I'm going for this thing flies for like 15 minutes. So I'm sitting there doing all sorts of these crazy patterns and loops and all this stuff. And I I put the footage up and asked people, I said, look, if you can find this white plane in the beans somewhere here, and I've put like a little red oval, um, please help me find it because, you know, there's, you know, like anything, it's not a ton of money in it. But there's a receiver that I don't want to have to buy separately. There's a motor and an ESC, and I think it's like an 80-amp ESC. It's a big motor. It's a big prop. It's a, you know I wanted to use that as a really big-sized twin, and I can't because it's in the beans somewhere. <laughs> anyway, so I looked, and I got some great footage, and I put the footage up. We'll have links to both those things, but the, the Magician uh, three-loop three attempt. Um, and then I'll I'll do the follow-up footage from the T6 Texan from the Hangar RC. The thing flies like a dream. Uh, Again, the FPV, if I weren't... The fact was is I could focus on looking for the plane through the FPV camera, and to me, that says a lot about the characteristics of the plane itself.
0: Yeah, that spoke to me when you said that you were flying FPV and you were doing what you were doing, and there was no concern about is the plane going to fly, right? You were just... It's going to do what I want it to do. Exactly.
1: And it does. It's awesome.
0: Um, Well, Terry, or have you been trying to say something?
2: Uh, No, I was just wondering, when do they harvest the corn?
1: uh, The beans? They said it's turning brown now, so it's probably going to be harvested in a week. So they'll either find it the hard way, they'll find it the easy way, and we might get it returned to us, or it just might get stuffed underneath everything. Yeah. And we'll okay. still probably never find it. I will likely go out after it's been harvested and just do a quick walkthrough, um, just in hopes that I might salvage something, maybe a receiver, <laughs> God knows what. Um, well, but yeah, does the person who does the harvesting. Do they know that it's there
2: and they're looking for it?
1: Well, we rent uh, we rent the the field in the middle. And then we've already told them that we've lost probably about three or four planes. So
2: okay. it, it, I'm so not they the know only to be on one. the lookout.
1: <laughs> yeah, they yeah. know to look okay. out. And uh, there's a lot of guys like, dude, you're never going to find it. I mean, we lost, and they're like, we lost a 70 inch something or other, you know, nah, good luck. I mean, right. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I know. I went to the last meeting. I just said, look, if anybody happens to be out there and sees just, if you got a thing and you want to do something with your drone, like maybe roll over that area back there. And they said, yeah, we will, but don't hold your breath. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I actually
2: found someone's plane that way once where I flew in when I was living in Lubbock, Texas. Our field was bordered by some crops that were rotated with different things. Mm-hmm. And I think this time of year, maybe it was sorghum. I'm not quite sure, but okay. whatever it was, it was the plants were above my head and I'm six foot three. Oh, yeah. And when you get in there and you get in the middle of these things, you can't see past your fingertips when your arms out. It was crazy. Yeah, But a yeah. friend of mine put in a 64 Size top flight P51 Mustang. Yeah. And this is a scheme that's uh, overall like olive drab, but it had invasion stripes. Okay. So we saw the area where it went down. So four or five of us went over there and after half an hour, uh, same thing, the sun was going down. We knew we were running out of time. Um, We couldn't find it. and Mm -hmm. We didn't find any trace of it, but I happened to have a drone with me that had a 4k camera. And so I'm like, fine, I'll put that up. And I flew over, did a couple patterns back and forth. Um, but again, because of the way the sun was, I wasn't able to look at the screen and really get much detail right. real time, looking through the camera, right, have but I recorded it, it. Yeah. So I recorded it in 4k, went back and looked and even looking at the video that it was capturing, all you see is just green, green, green. <laughs> and then I went back and did it again at the area when I flew over the area where we kind of thought it was. And I saw just a little glimpse of a black and white stripe, just the picked out between two leaves there (laughs) and so it was the invasion stripes that gave it away everything else just blended it into it yeah i went back the next day kind of triangulated where it was and went right to it and miraculously the plants that made it so hard to find also cushioned it like Mm -hmm. it landed on a pillow there was no damage at all to the airplane
1: right so i mean that that's kind of why the magician got it got three flights because, it, you know, yeah. crash landed twice. Not not all of them pretty, but those beans are tangled pretty good. So, <laughs> right. yeah, they, yep. they act as a good cushion. So nice. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm glad so you that got, was something, a, got something back. Yeah,
2: yeah. It was a, it made the drone worthwhile. <laughs> and it, it's like my uh, buddy Keith Sparks says, that uh, tall grass is a poor man's wind tunnel. So when you're test flying <laughs> airplanes and you're not quite sure what's going to happen, just find some tall grass or beans <laughs> or sorghum, whatever, and throw it over that. Yeah. You'll be fine
1: that's funny. That's so true. Nice, um, and to, to finish up my segment because there's there's not a whole lot. Uh, I started uh laying out the P sixty one the from the thirteenth squadron. I'm looking for. I'm really looking forward oh. to building that. Um, and then okay, so, and I'm not gonna I'm gonna call him out, but I'm not gonna call him out. But basically, uh, Tim from Flight Fest, who you and I both hung out with for a little bit. Yeah. Um, he sent a laser cut because he heard us talking about it on the couple shows ago and so he's like i'm sending you something i'm gonna give you a little something extra in there and i'm like what and so i opened it up and it's it's one we've all been kind of doing like a planning on doing a little group build um somebody made the design and it's turned out really well and he's like hey look who else wants to build this because i'll send you something um and then with that he also took black foam board and printed out the p61 um and laser cut No, so all those little cuts and pieces and all that stuff i don't have to cut out he's got it right there so um i'm really looking forward to getting moving on that
2: yeah how great is that design It's beautiful jack amazes me with that the the p61 has so many curves and there's not a straight part on the airplane but he took a foam board design and makes it look there's no question it's a p61 exactly it looks good
1: well, and, and
2: honestly, you don't find many Balsa versions of that.
1: No, you don't. And that is, that's what we're talking about is just like, that is a plane that is rarely modeled, you know, um, yeah. most people either because not, not too many people like it, but I think like you said, there's a lot of curves and parts and pieces to it. So um, and with, and that's one of the reasons why I had them on when I had them on, you know, I've been looking at full scale aircraft and what to purchase and, and if it's even worth purchasing and all that stuff, like as I'm working towards my private pilot license, I figure when I'm done, I'm, I'm going to want something to fly and or I'm going to want something to fly my family with. And they may not initially be exclusive. So I'm starting to look at like, well, should I buy a Quickie? What kind of kits should I look at? And, you know, starting that whole gambit. So I looked at the Dragonfly because I was looking at the Dragonfly for other designs and came across the Quickie and the Q2, it's a Burt rattan based design. And I'm, so I took that and that's got a lot of curves. There's very few straight lines on it. And I decided I'm going to make, I'm going to put a build together and test out his method that he talked to us about. And uh, it turned out really, so far it's turned out really good. I just have to test it at this point. I need to finish. Uh, And, oh, that was, that was the whole thing is uh, the receiver that I was going to put in the quickie uh, was in the Magician. So
0: uh, that's problematic. Yeah.
1: So I was like, uh, I'll have to get another one. Um, anyway, I don't have a, I'm trying to see if I have a picture to show Terry of what the quickie, uh, the foam board version looks like. Uh, turned out really good.
0: Um, well, while you're looking for that, what was so special about that, uh, that receiver that it needed to be that one versus. Uh,
1: no, because like I, I don't know where the other, I've got like three or four of them and they're in various planes. And I have a lot of planes to go through to find the other, three or four. Um, and I just haven't found them yet. I also haven't looked too terribly hard.
0: So it's a uh, channel issue. Cause I remember you bought a bunch of those little like four channel
1: low profile, lightweight. Yeah. They, they disappeared in planes and I haven't found where I put the other ones. And, and they've also gone down in three different planes that got eaten by beans or whatever plant was out there. Uh, I had a flying wing that I put one in and that, that got lost in there. So let me see here. Uh, there's a, that should be, uh, hopefully that should link you to a video, Terry. Okay. Um, anyway, so I'm going to finish up the, I'm going to find a receiver and put it in there and test out the, the quickie and get that done. And I think with that, I'm also going to kind of test out the Lincoln sport, uh, get, get a power system in there again and test that out. Cause I, I think it was going to work before I just, something went wrong anyway. And then last mm. but not least uh, I've been working on the build video for the Prandtl D uh, building a build video is a lot more work than I thought. <laughs> Isn't it? It is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I did yeah. a lot of the work as far as recording, but now I'm doing all the editing and I'm not good about, you know, what's what's in front and what's in back and how to zoom it in and zoom it out. And I, don't know. I got two different yeah. views. working with
2: every time i go to make any sort of video in my workshop i'm thinking all right 30 minutes in and out i know what i'm going to (laughs) say and four hours later i'm banging my head against the wall like why can't i just say the things that need to be said there's (sighs) there's so much more to it every time
1: yeah other Mm -hmm. than creating a script i guess you know and trying to work from that and then of course sounding natural while you're doing it it's not easy yeah Right. And then
2: your tongue just forgets to work at times. And for some reason you can rehearse it 50 times. You turn on the camera and your tongue just knows. So.
3: <laughs> yep.
1: Ain't that true. Um, I mean, that pretty anyway, much sums how, up. How
0: many intros did we watch over these oh, man. two years? We, we've been going. we won't
1: get into it at least two times, almost every time we go. <laughs> so, um, okay. And then that kind of brings me to more of the full scale stuff. I'll go through that really quick. Uh, basically just sort of doing continuing pattern work and landings Um, I've got the landings and the the pattern's really good. The, the, uh, com work is getting a lot better. Um, and basically I just need to continue to work on the landings. I think, uh, I think I'm nose up and I'm more level than I think when I land lately. So I've got to work on how to get that straightened out and kind of grease the landings a little bit better, but, uh, they sent me home with a solo test. So do the, like the the take home test portion of the solo stuff. Um, Cause I expect that the, the plane that I'll be soloing on is going to come out of the shop and then we'll be able to get that taken care of. So I'll be able to start logging nice. solo hours, which is exciting. Yeah. Very cool. And then I went out and looked at the ultralight, uh, the CGS, uh, CGS Hawk, um, which is an ultralight that has all the, it has aileron rudder elevator and flaps. Uh, 10, 10, 20 and 30 degrees and uh, like a bar that you pull down. Um, it's neat. Um, it's got a lot more work than I think I expected I'd need to do. But then again, for the price, it's probably worth it. Um, and then the experience of recovering. Uh, I've been kind of looking around and seeing uh, what else I need to do. I've got a friend who's an aircraft. Um, he's a, uh, what is it? A helicopter Engine repair guy for the military, and he's uh, anyway. He said he'd be help. happy to look, uh, go with me and look at the look at the engine, um, or help me get it in pristine condition, ready to fly. So uh, that's a big nice thing because again, with the ultralights, it's not as stringent as uh, certified aircraft. So you you don't have to go through um sort of a mechanic or anything like that if you think it's good enough you're taking your own life in your own hands then go ahead and do it it's yeah kind of it's good. funny
2: that a lot of people think our requirements levied by the faa are more strict for rc now than for ultralights are
1: they kind of in many senses they kind of are um yeah yeah I, 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 that's a that's a whole different topic for a different show yeah <laughs> I know if we if you mention the FAA and, and stringent things to Lee, uh, you might as well sit <laughs> yeah. back and let, let him go for 30 minutes. <laughs> He's getting better. I know he is. <laughs> anyway, well, uh, without going too deep on that, uh, that's pretty much what I've been doing in the full size stuff. Why don't we go to have we had any uh, listener comments, Joe? Um,
0: I know you were telling me about two that you'd seen. Um, yeah. I haven't seen any recently.
1: Okay. Uh, I know I saw one from David Eardsley. Uh, he was listening to episode 32, and he basically um, he just kind of indicated he really enjoyed what we were doing. Uh, we should keep it up, and we appreciate the, the good words. Um, and then mm-hmm. uh, I had a new guy at the field. Um, he came to our field the one day, and I just was kind of chatting around. And he seemed pretty – um, like he knew what he was doing. He had some larger scale balsa planes and, uh, he just, just talking and I'm like, oh, that's awesome. And he says, oh, those flight tests, I got to build some of those flight test planes. They look like a lot of fun. I said, yeah, they are. That's pretty much what I've been doing. I said, although I've been looking to get into balsa, he goes, well, if you need any help, you know, holler out. I said, well, if you need any help with the balsa, with the flight test stuff, you probably don't. But if you do, you know, I said, you know, uh, my buddy and I, that's kind of what our podcast kind of, uh, deals with. And he said, podcast, what's your podcast? Let me know. I want to know. <laughs> uh, and so I gave him the name and he started looking it up and uh, you know, um, and he just kind of said he listened and as, as a guy who's been in the hobby a while, uh, cause it looks, it sounds like he had been in the hobby for about like 10 years and he was in pretty deep. And then like most people, they get a family and they get expenses and all of a sudden they've got to live a responsible life. And RC kind of takes the back seat to that. Um, well, he he went out there. Uh, and he was basically just saying that, uh, as somebody who's, you know, kind of uh, in the hobby. He said he he really appreciates. Um, he says what we're doing is, is really great, and he goes it's definitely a good way to help out uh, the RC community and educate people getting into it, and uh, and he said he's really enjoying it, and I for for me, that. That says a lot more than I think, uh, maybe I'm putting a lot of stock into it. But, you know, we we don't know if we're helping out or if, or if we're doing something that's beneficial to the occult old timers, the people who know the hobby. They're not looking to get information right. on the hobby. They're, You know, is this still beneficial to you guys? I don't know. I hope so.
0: Um, so, well, nothing else are getting uh, entertainment value from our mishaps. <laughs> Probably, reliving the glory days.
1: <laughs> Probably, I, I hope so. I, I hope they're gaining something out of it. Sounds like he he certainly is, and he's certainly enjoying the stories that we have. Um, they're obviously story that everybody has been through if they aren't doing it now, you know. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, and anyway, thanks uh, thanks for reaching out and let me know what you think, Jeremy. And um, I'm hoping that uh, we can. You know, again, kind of what we mentioned before, share, share with the people you fly with. Uh, If you like this podcast and you want to hear more, or if you listen to RC Roundtable and you love what they do, too, let people know what podcasts are out there to listen to. Because I know when I was kind of new or when I'm noodling around in my car and I want something other than the radio to listen to, uh, I'd rather hear aviation stuff than not. So uh, knowing what's out there is good that's the word i agree yep.
0: well moving on uh matthew we've got a build night coming up uh the 22nd i think it was yeah
1: that's gonna be uh, less than a week from when this goes out um
0: actually i spoke incorrectly it's not a build night it's gonna be a sim night um friday october 22nd 8 to 11 p.m uh feel free to show up and build uh but we'll be in discord and we'll be uh, flying in Phoenix RC uh, which is free to download free to use and uh, you can actually if you go looking Matthew you'd have to tell me where but you can find the various flight test uh, airplane files to put into the simulator yep. uh, to fly with but we're just going to get into a, a multiplayer room fly together uh, yep. go ahead and plan on working ahead of time to make sure that you get installed, you get your uh, transmitter hooked up. If you need any help, uh, hop into Discord in the days leading up to And feel free to ask us, and if we can help you, we will. Um, but we'll include links down in the show notes for where to download, and then just make sure that you uh, download and then do all the updates so you're running the 6.0. Otherwise, you won't be able to hop into a room with us. Right. And then we'll have... Um, We'll be in the Discord build channels.
1: Actually, uh, we have a Sim Chat voice channel.
0: We did. We do. Oh, and we have a voice chat uh, Sim Party video channel as well. Right. So, that's so
1: we may be in the video the video chat, kind of sharing what we're flying, so you could kind of see what we're talking mm-hmm. about if you're listening. Uh, you can also go into a Sim Chat and just kind of, you know, if you guys just want to talk while you're simming, um, I'm not sure how well the the Phoenix RC system handles audio as a group. So uh, this is a, you guys are, everybody's welcome to use the sim chat channel, uh, for, for voice while you're doing sim together.
0: Yeah. And this is the first time. So normally we do the build nights. This, uh, we've talked about before Matthew and I, uh, over the past six months or so about wanting to do a sim party sometimes. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of our first foray into this, uh, where we've flown together, but opening up and trying to get a, a bunch of people together to fly. So come fly with us, have a good time. Uh, but also afterwards, feel free to pro- provide feedback about you know things that maybe could have make it go smoother uh, after the fact. Because this again, we're, we're we hadn't done this before, so we're going to kind of roll in, and just try to have people come in, and fly, and have a good time. We'll see how it goes.
1: Okay, good.
0: Um. And then one um, last thing
1: I before think, we talk to Terry, right?
0: Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh,
1: that's just um, the episode after this one, um, I believe, will be uh, right around Halloween. So, uh, what we did last year, and I think we'd like to continue doing this if we get enough stories, at least we'll be a segment, is uh, Halloween scary stories time. Um, send in your scary stories. Send us your near misses. Send us uh, a blo- blooper that you did that uh, the other folks that are listening to this podcast can learn from. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I just, we've all done some dumb things. I know this year I've got a story to add to that, um, where a plane came alive and it was facing me. Uh, that was not fun. Uh, so I'll be covering that for sure to, to go over it again, but that kind of thing, or even if it's just simple near miss stuff, like, uh, you know, when you're bringing it in towards you, don't, uh, don't aim the plane at the crowd, you know, just in case the surface goes bad, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that kind of thing, you know, I don't know. Um, we'd love to hear what you have to say and we'd love to pass along a message that could help others from getting in trouble uh, as far as like being possibly in danger. Yeah. I think that's it. Do we have uh, any airplane histories, Joe? Or are we going to skip that? Uh, we page? do.
0: Yeah, we do not. And I'm sorry. You'd asked me to look into one, and um, I just didn't before we got going. So I apologize for that. I will uh, endeavor to have something for us next time.
1: Okay. And then we'll just call up Terry Dunn to add any comments to that for next time. Yeah, I thought I was here
2: to talk airplane history, so um,
0: <laughs> I think I'm done here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, here's the show. No. We'll
0: talk to you guys next time.
1: Yeah, that's it.
0: <laughs> At the Aviation RC News. Um no. All right, so Matt, why don't you go ahead? All
1: right. Well, uh, well, I want to introduce everybody to Terry Dunn. Um, Terry Dunn. I'm going to go over some credentials, uh, and then we're going to start talking to Terry Dunn about uh, designing aircraft, and what he does to design his aircraft that he's made. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Terry Dunn, if you don't know him, he is a co-host of the RC Roundtable. He's uh, there with Fitz Terry. Or, well, that's obviously him. Fitz and Lee. Yeah. Um, I'm so used to saying Fitzgerald Lee. Um, mm-hmm. He is a staff writer, I believe, right now for AMA Publications, um, um, the Model Aviation well, I'm Magazine. A col-
2: I'm a columnist, so I don't know if that applies under Staff Writer, but okay. I write the electric column. So
1: Okay, good. So you're a columnist. Um, yes. You have also had many articles published in other illustrious Model Aviation Magazines. I've certainly been enjoying your um, model, model Aviation Magazine publications, your, your articles that you've written so far in there. But um, you also have other stuff that you've written for things like Tested.com, Air and Space, Smithsonian, Smithsonian Magazine, uh, FlyRC. Uh, is that a magazine?
2: It was. Oh, yeah. it was,
1: right. Folded, yeah. Uh, and another one, if you used to uh, uh, read it, uh, RC Report Magazine, uh, as well as a couple other things in various places here and there. So Terry is, a, I'll call it, a proverbial uh, columnist about town. If you would uh, for the hobby, uh,
2: I'll take that. Okay.
1: <laughs> um, and as well as uh, some of the things that you've done have been a lot of reviews of different products. Uh, you definitely um, have taken some time on the RC Roundtable to review some products. Uh, you are also involved in hosting events and pretty much in all different aspects of the hobby. Um, not just um, not just I'll call it old timer balsa stuff. And I say that only because we're new and we've been working in funboard board lately. Um, but basically, yeah, you've, you've been all around doing stuff in this hobby for a long, for, well, for a while.
2: You can say a long time since I was a kid. Okay. So yeah, it's the virus got in my blood early and I haven't found a cure yet, <laughs> but I'm not looking that hard either.
1: No, so. I bet not. Nice. Well, uh, you also currently work, oh, wait, no, you don't currently work at NASA. You used to work at NASA. um, I did. And I'll be asking you a little bit of questions about that. um, Because it sounds to me, if I remember right, you were working on astronaut stuff, which people find very fascinating. I know I do. Um, Well, it may probably not be as exciting as it sounds, um, but it probably is. Uh, I know you said you're working, who are you working for currently? I, I work for Tesla now. Okay. Can you talk about anything? About what you do? Not a peep. Not a peep. Unfortunately. Okay. So no.
2: I actually had to sign an NDA when, when I got hired there. So yeah, okay. they're pretty serious about not sharing their secrets.
1: Okay. Well, then we can just talk to you a little bit about NASA. Um, okay. And, and that'll be fine. Just know that he works for a mysterious company, <laughs> a mysterious <laughs> car company, a mysterious electric car, car company. company. Yeah. yeah. Um, Doing mysterious things. And then uh, one yeah. of the latest designs, especially for us foam boarders. Again, for, for those of us who are working in the foam board stuff frequently, um, one of the latest designs that you put together, um, which was the parallax, right? You had worked with Dan Spahn's to put together a foam board version of it called the yin-yang.
2: Um, sort of. The parallax is a single engine asymmetric model. The yin-yang is a twin. Oh, so, see. So, yeah, it's the same sort of design concept, but they, they are different
1: airplanes for sure. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad you're here to straighten me out because I was definitely sideways on that. <laughs> That's
0: yeah, right. And, and, and I'm going to have a question. That just adds another question to later on because <laughs> I've got questions about the twin. I can't imagine doing this as a, as a single. Right. At least based on what I've seen at the yang. So I, I want to tell <laughs>
1: you that my favorite episode of the RC Roundtable, which I remember I was driving to and from the Cub Scout like day camp or whatever it was, we were some, one of the things it's like an hour and a half drive in the middle of nowhere. Um, mm-hmm. was you started talking about your design of the parallax and you couldn't talk about, I know you guys like to kind of brief over stuff when you get technical, you're like, ah, let's not talk about technical stuff. And they go, okay, sure. And off you move to the next subject. I'm like, no, talk about the parallax. I want to know the details. <laughs> I, I, I enjoy designing planes at a foam board. I enjoy taking mm-hmm. wild ideas and seeing if I can make them fly. And as I don't know anything about aviation, like I'm I'm only a couple of years into it. I'm not an avionics engineer. I'd love to know some stuff. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. So, uh, but before we get into those details, because I do want to talk about, I think the parallax is probably the best thing to talk about because I think it'll talk on all the subjects we want to know about.
2: Okay, that's fair and probably an accurate assessment. Sure.
1: I mean, because we could talk about like, oh, designing a P fifty one Mustang. It's like, okay, well, it's symmetrical, so you don't have to worry about half the stuff you need to worry about.
2: You know. Um, I'm I'm going to argue that point when we get there.
1: Good, but let's uh, <laughs> let's do that. But before we do, let's talk okay. about your beginnings. How did you? Uh, how long have you been at this hobby? You said you started when you were really young.
2: Um. Yeah, I don't know the exact date, but. Um, my dad is the oldest of, is it six? So yeah, my dad's oldest of six. So, um, and strangely enough, my dad was in the army and in Vietnam when his youngest brother was born. So I had aunts and uncles who were pretty much my age. Okay. And so, and tons of cousins and all that. So my grandfather and my uncles, they had all done control lines since they were young. So I grew up just being around control line planes and they would, uh, have a scrap of styrofoam. They would just make a glider. Uh, Just very hands-on type people that weren't afraid to try things and build stuff. So that was my exposure to it. And for whatever reason, I was born with the gene that just has an interest in airplanes. So that's always been there. And based on the family I talked about, that gave me the avenue to explore all those things. So I was Mm -hmm. flying control line planes, half A and 35 size, and just whittling balsa gliders and stuff, uh, as early as I can remember, probably starting at seven or eight years old. Wow. And the house we lived at at the time had, it was kind of in the woods, but we had a clearing that would just barely fit a half a control line plane. So I think the lines (laughs) are like 30 feet long. So you need a 60 foot diameter circle. We might've had 65. So if you drift (laughs) while you're standing in the middle, you're going to grab a tree branch. But I had a Cox 049 powered uh, PT-19 mm-hmm. that was held together with rubber bands a kind of a quintessential control line plane that kids had back then. And yeah. I just flew the Dickens out of it until I destroyed it. And then we moved on to 35 size stuff. And at some point I made a transition, um, probably during middle and high school that I got into RC cars. And for a while I did 10th uh, scale off-road racing. And then when I moved out and went to college, I got back into RC Plains. And gosh, I I don't think I ever looked back after that.
1: So what brought you back to RC Plains in college? Um, Well, I went to Embry-Riddle
2: Aeronautical University. So for those who aren't familiar with it, it's basically a school for all things aeronautical. So I was just immersed in airplanes all the time. Mm -hmm. The campus is literally at the airport. I had a runway that ran by several of my classrooms, so mm-hmm. it just fed that passion inside of me all the time, and that's, as with anybody that has that hankering for things that fly, model airplanes are the best way to explore that, and uh, on a low budget, and the the attention span and the tools, the abilities of somebody that age, there's really no better way than with model airplanes. So mm-hmm. that, that was my avenue, when I took it. Nice. Yeah.
1: Uh, what were you studying at Embry-Riddle?
2: <sighs> um. Strangely enough, this is one of several instances in my life where laziness steered me in a good direction. I originally wanted to go there to become a professional pilot. Okay. They have a program for aeronautical science, and mm-hmm. basically you go, you get your pilot's license, and when you're graduating four years later or whatever it is, you're a rated commercial pilot. Um, I was late submitting my application to the school. And by the time I was accepted, all the slots for that program were filled. And one of my friends at high school was also going to Indrividal. And he was doing the engineering physics program, which is an engineering program that's uh, related to spacecraft design. And so I'm like, oh, that sounds like fun. Let me do that. The idea was I'll do that for (laughs) a semester. And then a slot in the, the piloting program will open up. Well, as it turned out, I started engineering physics and really liked it. And so I just stuck with it for, it took me five years to get out of there. But uh, that's what I graduated with, the uh, engineering degree, basically how to design spacecraft. Okay, cool.
1: So That's yeah. awesome. I, uh, oh, boy, I, I don't want to go too far. I guess I, I want to, this brings it towards what, uh, I guess, where we're trying to go. Did you have any aviation aspirations? Were you looking to be a pilot at any point in this? um you mean after graduating
2: college sure or through or, um no I mean, it's funny because the way they have things set up at Embry-Riddle or at least they did at the time there's a whole ramp full of airplanes that are they're pilots going on training flights if there's an empty seat as a student you can hop in one of the empty seats so I went and did several ride-alongs in Mooneys and Cessnas and other things and I decided that I didn't want to do anything if I wasn't at the controls so i, I didn't want to be a passenger in small airplanes okay and strangely enough i guess along with the same experience i i lost that drive to become a pilot as well i really got more fascinated with the design side of it and okay and making things so it, maybe it has a little bit to do with. The, a weak stomach or something, some nausea that I had on a few night flights. But for whatever reason, I decided that engineering was where my strengths were, and that's what I decided
0: to follow. Okay. Nice. Well, it's good that all ended up working out for you because – go ahead. Well, it's
2: pure luck probably. I mean, I was a dumb kid. I didn't know what I really wanted. (laughs) I just – I fell a lot backwards into it, and uh, I'm glad I
0: did. Yeah, I mean, how, much, how many of us really knew what we wanted to do or what we were going to be doing when we were that age?
2: Very few are, are lucky enough to have that.
0: I, that Matthews I, over here raises
2: no, so you like he knew I, okay, what was up.
1: I knew I wanted to design something. <laughs> I knew that that's kind of where my brain went. Like I like to think things up and figure out why they work or why they don't. So, mm-hmm. But what, once I got into engineering school, like I went to Drexel University, and I had no idea that there were five or six different kinds of engineers like majors. And then mm-hmm. all the sub subgroups within them. And I'm like, Oh, Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, I'm still mm-hmm. learning
2: about new types of engineering that I wasn't aware of.
1: Yeah. Right. Oh. Um, I, well I'm, I'm listening to, and actually this is probably going to lead into the next topic we end up covering kind of after the Halloween episode or maybe during the Halloween episode, um, talking about what we listen to as podcasts. i I'm listening to the uh, engineering aerospace engineering podcast, and that guy builds rockets in the UK or he's, he's actually a composite structural engineer and he talks to all the different aerospace engineers throughout the industry, both in rocketry and aeronautics. So airplane companies and other stuff like that. So if you want to okay. feed that, detailed like different aspects of little 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 deep parts of what's going on like joe and i were talking about um was it the the uh fusion uh fusion welding i had no idea that oh, yeah. wasn't For, even a uh, thing
0: yeah <laughs> you're talking about the uh more of the contact smearing of the metal between two surfaces to as opposed to actually heat melting and mm-hmm. Mixing of the material. Friction
1: welding. Sorry.
0: Friction. Yeah. Uh, That I, like I found out about that watching actually smarter every day when he took a tour on, um, on a rocket production line and they were showing where they did the little smear between the joints and that was actually welding. So,
1: Pretty interesting stuff. Uh, anyway, yeah. Uh, so we'll, we'll probably cover that in a couple episodes from now. Uh, you'll learn about all the things that we listen to that get us excited about aviation. But that's not what we're here to continue about. So let's talk about what you did. Um, at, let's, let's shift gears to NASA. Um, mm-hmm. I know a lot of people, they hear the word NASA and they're like, oh, my gosh, that's so amazing. And th- because yeah, it is. NASA has quite a <laughs> reputation uh, about basically breaking through to, to the new and doing it well and thoroughly. Okay. Yeah, sure. So the question <laughs> then is what did you do for NASA? Uh, I was there.
2: Okay, go ahead. And, and where did,
1: where did you work out of?
2: I was in Houston at the Johnson space center Okay. and I was hired there right out of graduation from Embry Riddle in 1997.
1: Okay, and that was a
2: again pure luck. That was a good time to be getting into the aerospace industry because we were making all the plans and putting the pieces together to start building the International Space Station. Mm-hmm. So NASA was ramping up to add that to their menu, mm-hmm. and I got there right in the thick of it.
1: Nice. Oh wow! So what did you end up working on when you started there, and what maybe if it moved into other areas, where did it where did it head before you left? It,
2: Yeah, it's a little bit of a complex question, but to simplify it, um, I was there for 16 years and it's probably easiest to break those 16 years up into the first eight and then the last eight.
1: Okay.
2: So in the first eight, mostly I worked on software testing uh, type jobs. And so I was with a crew of people that our primary task was um, to test out the mission control center before every mission. And I'm not sure how to explain it in simple terms, but basically it, when I started there, they were still using mainframes a Mission Control Center to run all the software that, that happens on the ground.
1: That's 20 years after and mainframes were popular, right? At least. And <laughs>
2: every now and then you're there in the middle of the night, you start digging through drawers. We would find punch cards, for like programming punch cards that were <laughs> around. Um, oh, wow. They weren't using those anymore, but still, we stored data on magnetic reels. Um, there was a lot of old mm-hmm. technology there. And yes, it was outdated, but one of the things about NASA is, especially with manned spaceflight, manned spaceflight. Well, I'm sorry, you can't say manned anymore, human spaceflight. So, Fair enough.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, that when they find something that works, they don't want to take a risk. They stick with that thing that works until they absolutely can't hold on to it anymore and they have to upgrade to something new. I'm currently in the utility field.
1: It's the same way there.
2: Yeah. So, uh, and that's why we were hanging on to mainframes and several of the big projects I worked on were taking applications off those mainframes and putting them onto servers and things like that. Um, So by the time I left, yeah, the mainframes were gone, but it was neat to see that transition out of these room filling computers that were in the basement up to the newer stuff, Mm -hmm. which filled the the top floor of the, the room. But, uh, So basically, my crew of less than 10 people, we would go into the Mission Control Center and we would replicate the whole flight crew or the, the, the crew on the ground inside Mission Control Center and we would run all the applications they run and we would make sure that before each flight that the mission control center was ready because it would change between each flight, depending on the specifics of that mission. Mm-hmm. And we would interface with the shuttle simulator, which was a few buildings away. Not only does it act like a space shuttle, but it transmits data and telemetry like a real space shuttle would. So we connected that data. So we're practically running a mission, just simulated right? to, to make sure that things are working on both ends, both the software that runs on the shuttle and the software that runs in this control. So, That was the primary job. And in addition to that, I got to do some testing on the shuttle simulator side, which is fun because you get to fly the the motion-based six-axis shuttle simulator. Mm -hmm. Um, That was always fun. And when I started with that, they were still using analog gauges in that cockpit. And they didn't switch to glass cockpits until a few years later. So it's really fun to to fly the shuttle on analog gauges.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's it's much like when when I go into the the – Unit I'm flying for my private pilot. It's an old Cessna 172 from 1940, whatever. And yeah, it's all analog. I mean, there's, there's no digital anything except the radio, which is pretty much push button and dial. It's, Uh you know, you're, you're not getting too fancy. Um, but you go into a more modern one and it's like, you know, glass cockpit, beautiful display and just hope you don't run out of batteries. (laughs)
2: Right. Uh, So I got to get my hands on a lot of neat stuff there. And when I was first starting out, there was kind of a generation gap there. There was myself and a whole crew of people who were pretty much fresh out of college, and then a smattering of people 10 to 20 years older than us, and then a whole other large group of people who had been there since the Apollo era. And oh, wow. they were all very, very smart, very hardworking and all of that. But they'd been there long enough. They were more than happy to let us young, eager punks go off and do the the new fun <laughs> jobs. And so I mean, anything new that came along, like, hey, go ahead, kid, go nuts. And so <laughs> we were able to really get involved with all these new things and just immerse ourselves in it. And so I feel like I got to do lots of really, really cool stuff. And then at some point, eight years into it, I transitioned over to, I went from software to hardware engineering. So I transitioned within the same company. I started working at the neutral buoyancy lab, which is the huge pool where they train for spacewalks. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. I worked in the lab that builds the tools that astronauts use during spacewalks and also the spacesuits that they use in the water, which are actually the same exact spacesuits that they use in space. The only difference is they don't have the built-in life support systems. Okay. In the pool, the life support systems replaced with umbilical umbilical cords that uh, provide the air and the calm and all that from systems in that building. Okay. Um, but, it, uh, in fact, a lot of the spacesuits that were used in the pool were previous flight spacesuits.
1: Okay. So, all the oh. same hardware.
2: And yeah. another big difference is on a busy year – on the lab that makes the suits that actually go in orbit, they might build eight or 10. Right. We were building like 500 spacesuits a year for the training. So really just fast paced all the time. Just wow. Being able to dive in head first to all this stuff that's going on. It was really cool and a great experience for me to really learn about how all this stuff works. And yeah, right. I was in heaven.
1: And, and not being and, afraid of just going in and trying it. Uh, to yes. some degree, I mean, uh, you don't have degree. the time to just go, let me figure it all out to the nth degree. Like, yes, you have to figure it out, but at some point you've got to just build the darn thing and get into it. Right. And that's
2: especially true on the tool side. And once again, all the tools that were used were exactly the same as the ones they used in orbit and designed to be in the vacuum of space, not designed to be in a chlorinated pool. <laughs> so we had a, a lot of corrosion type issues that we dealt with. Which uh, made what we did very interesting. You have uh, stainless steel fasteners that go into aluminum pieces, and you get a lot of galvanic corrosion that goes mm-hmm. on there. So we were always chasing down those things and finding problems that nobody else in the world is dealing with because nobody else is putting spacesuits in a pool for you know, hundreds of hours. And so <laughs> it's uh, it was really interesting for me. It kind of fed my. Uh, ADHD and so there's always something new going on always a, a fun yeah. new problem to tackle and at the same time it was at what I thought at the time very fast-paced um, in hindsight working for the government then government fast-paced is different from yes Tesla fast-paced or yes. private sector fast-paced yeah yeah consultant so
1: fast-paced versus where the, I work now which is a government utility there are different paces altogether. Yeah, sometimes Mm
2: -hmm. I yearn for a busy NASA day when I'm having a busy Tesla day. (laughs) (laughs) And related to that, if there are any people listening to this who were in college or soon to be in college and considering internships, I really encourage you to do multiple internships, one at a government-related type job and one at a private sector job. See those differences and compare and contrast and take a little bit from both. Mm -hmm. The ideal Mm -hmm. situation is somewhere in the middle, but uh, even now having had a a good deal of experience in both areas, I'm sometimes shocked by the differences that I see and the different ways that problems can be tackled in equally effective, but vastly different ways.
1: I hear Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Um, My work as a civil structural engineer refitting floors structurally for a microchip company is a very different pace than that of we'll call it a government building that they want to refit a floor it, or right. put a new air handler unit or something like that. Like it's way different. It's like, can yeah, you have let's that? Let's do an
2: environmental study on that. Uh, we'll yeah. Back in six months.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It's like anytime in the next six months will be great. And then, you know, you talk to the microchip company and they're like, we need it built in two weeks.
0: Yeah. Like, yeah, we, we don't have time for the downtime. Like,
1: as in, yeah, we, we don't. Cause if we do, we've missed our window for, for profit, basically. Right.
0: It, the flip side of that is I work, uh, and I, I don't normally talk about my work a whole lot, and I'm not going to go too deep into it, but I kind of work low level corporate restaurant mm-hmm. franchise. Um, and by low level, I mean like I'm not working for at the corporate level, I'm sort of in between corporate and the restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I get to see some of the stuff that comes down to pipelines, and sometimes it's a real rapid, you know, here we go, but other times it's a real slow. So it's an interesting mix between the two. We've had stuff that's, that corporate's been talking about for, you know, a couple of years that still haven't come about or like, oh, it's, it's still coming, but then other things that come out of nowhere that suddenly has to happen right now. So it's, it's a weird mix between the two. It is very odd.
1: So, oh, cool! So, cool, sounds like but, you hit uh, Terry. You hit an amazing, I'll call it, uh, happy places
2: uh, where yep, you landed. Just look. pure dumb luck, and I'm <laughs> so thankful for that.
1: That's awesome. I, I, and it's I,
2: probably worth pointing out that since we're on the topic of model airplanes, at least partially,
1: yep, we're coming um, back to it. a lot of
2: people. <laughs> a lot of people think that my that I must be good with model airplanes because I worked at NASA, and I. I don't think that's true in any sense. There's, I can think of maybe a handful of occasions where my work experience or even uh, I could say what I learned in college. I can think of very few examples where that had a direct impact on making me a better modeler. However, the opposite, my modeling experience as a child and even through now that helped me countless times in my career. So you know what I was referring to earlier—modeling with modeling being a great venue for people with a Jones for aviation. There's, there's no better way to exercise that muscle and to get smarter about it. It it will pay dividends for the rest
0: of your life. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, here, here. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, there's engineering and puzzle solving and electronics these days going on. Like, it's a ton of stuff.
2: Yeah, at troubleshooting. For one. I, I think and, the
1: only thing that in engineering translates back is more process, the, the general process of taking care of a project. Right. That's probably about it.
2: Yeah, I think if on my first day of engineering school, they had said F equals MA in every application you can think of, and that's physics summed up in a nutshell, here's your degree. You know, go go start working and, and learn build what you some. really need to know. Yeah, <laughs> just remember wow. F equals M A. You'll be all right. Same.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure uh, for the electrical guys, that's uh, what is it? Uh, v equals I over yeah. R, right? Uh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now you're an electrical engineer. Good luck. Go <laughs> go have fun. Um, anyway, we're we're making light of that part, but it's not too far off. Um, so. So as you said, you you basically were surrounded by aviation as you went through your career, basically, whether you're at school or uh, at NASA or even uh, is it is it a thing in Tesla or is that or is that something you still can't talk about? (laughs) (laughs) But is aviation a thing? Yeah. I mean, do a lot of Um, the guys in there, is that kind of like their side hobby?
2: Um, Possibly. Where I'm at, I'm not aware aware of that many. There is a an informal group there of FPV pilots Okay. at, at the location I'm For at. Quadcopters um, and stuff, mostly. Yep. Okay. Um, so yeah, I think same sort of thing. When you're around people with natural curiosity and people who like to do things with their hands, their aviation is usually not that far away. But there isn't necessarily anything that draws aviation minded people to Tesla that I'm aware of.
1: Okay. So, all right. Uh, I, could, again, Joe and I could probably go for a while talking to you about NASA and talk about some of the minutia, but we came here to talk about designing airplanes. So we've had a couple people so far talking about their design process and, you know, talking to some of the basics, like I talked about how to take a three view and turn that into some kind of plane. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had somebody talk about their process, and then we had the NISCODAS come in and talk about how to make a molded foam, how, what their process is. And what I wanted to get to with you was more, I know that to, to do the parallax, it must have required some something a little bit more involved with, I want it to look like this, let's balance it and hope it flies.
2: There were some elements of that, but let's, yes, I, I do feel like I attacked it with a, a scientific strategy.
1: Okay. So let's talk about generally when you take on a project to design a plane, what's your build process? Um, you know, like what material do you like to start with? Is there a preference you like to go with? Um, is it different depending on your phase? How do you pick a plane? That kind of stuff.
2: I don't think there's any singular answer that that applies every time. Um, let me see if I can remember all the questions. Um, in terms of projects that interest me, uh, just about anything can. But typically, I'm drawn to things that are unusual that I don't fully understand. So to me, the figuring things out is a big part mm-hmm. of the reward in, in doing all of this. Okay. So. I feel like I could probably make a, a boxy type simple airplane. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I've done plenty of those, but if I'm doing that, there's something about that airplane, either in how it flies or some element of it that's unusual for me that I had to figure out to put into place. Okay. So I would, I would have to say that's my big draw is figuring something out and preferably something that nobody else has bothered to figure out before.
0: All right. So is there a component of you look at it and you say that that you know, obviously it works, but looking at it, it shouldn't. So let me figure out why it's working. What what's that magic sauce that's causing this to work? That's what you're looking to figure out.
2: Yeah, and not even necessarily something so obscure or so weird that it seems like sorcery, but something that just doesn't <laughs> quite jibe in my head, or something that I've never gone through the thought process before to figure out why it works. So I think mm-hmm. the parallax is one of those extreme examples that sure. it is pretty weird. But uh, there are other uh, other less extreme examples. Remember one I did when I was living in Houston that I was thinking, oh, I don't think anybody's ever done an EDF float plane or flying boat. So let me see if I can make a, a flying boat that's powered with an EDF. Turns out that was one of my worst failures. That plane didn't fly worth a hoot, or I should say, <laughs> it flew okay, but I couldn't get the darn thing off the water. It stuck to the water like Velcro. Um, but I, <laughs> I'm not mad about it because I, I learned a lot coming out of that project. So mm-hmm. yeah, they're they're not all successes.
0: So was there was it something in the weight? Was it that the EDF didn't have the oomph to get it up to speed to to plane out and get out of the water? What was causing it to stick so hard? It was all about hole design and where you put the step
2: and whether the you have a V hole or a flat hole and whether your bottom is smooth or it's kind of a rough foam. So there were a lot of elements to it where I thought I had done my homework and figured it out beforehand. Um, but <laughs> there were some important factors that I didn't take into account that basically when you powered it up, it, the motor was up high. But when you powered it up, the tail would sit on the water because the hole had so much, uh, the term we use at NASA, stiction. Um, the thing just sucked <laughs> in there. And this was a powerful EDF, so power wasn't a problem. It was uh, purely a design flaw in getting this thing going. So yeah. if I were to tackle that again now, I feel like I'm a little bit smarter about it, and I could make something worthwhile. Sure. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I want to sidestep for a second but that like kind of what you're talking about with that stiction makes me think of uh again big change gears but the john boat that i was taking this weekend it, it was very quickly it was involved in an accident in the the nose area and front underside got kind of bowed inward and that boat will not plane out no matter how much you give and it's got a pretty good mercury on the back but you cannot get it to get up on top of the water because if I was if I was rear driven maybe, but I'm also sitting on the front steering, mm-hmm. uh, and just that that bow in the front causes it to just suck that much harder as you try to get up on top of the water. So that that boat will never get on top again; it just pushes its way through.
1: Interesting. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah. It, so when it's interesting, and I say that because when I've had the RC uh, prop-driven ground boat. You know, that's nothing but it's a John boat, basically, because it's flat bottom. Mm
3: -hmm. It
1: was really key where the center gravity was set. So where the battery is placed in that John boat makes a big difference on if it's chilling across the grass or if it's tanking into the grass and really not going very far or if it's going to lift and take off and do back Mm -hmm. loops.
0: Dwarf is going to Tokyo Drift. Yeah, everywhere. Uh, well, that's <laughs> what
1: you want. I mean, that's kind of why you build one of those. <laughs> but but I noticed that that place where the center of gravity is makes a huge difference in how it fly or how it drives across the grass. And it, Terry's nodding yeah. his head like I've done that before. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, so, it, yeah, related to that, you know, the, the position of the step, the size of the step. The, yeah, there's so many factors there that yeah, that I just didn't consider.
1: Exactly. Well, good. Okay. So what, when you're designing a plane, what is, what do you, what do you prefer to start with? Uh, What material? Or do you like set out the material you want to build with first? Or do you say, Hey, I'm going to build this out a quick cheap material and then see if I can make it a, let's say balsa or hardwood or something first.
2: Um, Again, I don't think there's any singular answer that captures all of that. But typically, because I'm trying to, in essence, prove something, mm-hmm. the the cosmetics of the finished product really aren't that important to me. Right. So I find myself using foam almost exclusively. And if I think I can do it with foam board, that's typically the easiest option.
1: Okay, so, are you talking like, like this extruded foam, polystyrene foam, or like the uh, what is the pelletized foam that you see in packing material?
2: Oh uh, no, I. I guess that's... There's a lot of different but <laughs> Yeah, the stuff that um, I... Well, there's a few different ones. So there's the foam board that we all know and all its different flavors. But uh, Depron, model plane foam, mm-hmm. the fanfold stuff. I've got the stuff you can buy at Home Depot and half inch or yep. two and Whatever I happen to have on me that I need whatever thickness for, I'm not particularly picky about it. Okay. Um, but... I th- yeah, lately, if I think foam board does the job, I've got a box of it here, so why not? Yeah, it's, uh, it's accessible and it's cheap. AC. It's accessible and yeah, if I don't need compound curves or anything like that, that seems to be the fastest way to whip up an idea and test it out. Okay. So which makes... yeah, I think for so much of what flight test does, that's the beauty in foam board because in a lot of ways, it's a pretty crappy material for flying just because
0: (laughs) (laughs) you're not wrong No, there's (laughs) many many
1: truths in that
2: yeah especially the stuff from dollar tree that has the regular paper it's got a very short lifespan yep um Mm -hmm. but if you can use its advantages uh, to your benefit then yeah it's a a great material and if you can accept its detriments then yeah why not use it
1: the glue is barely holding the paper on the paper is incredibly thin it doesn't have a lot of give before it snaps without that surface. Those are all properties that are both good and bad about that product because you can use it to the advantage of making compound curves, sort of, if you keep the paper on one side and not the other, but you gotta be careful because if it comes off, you're hosed. (laughs) Right, and then
2: couple that with hot glue and you add another variable that is potentially catastrophic, especially like my buddies who live in Texas still, hot glue doesn't really work well for them. You're not going to leave that airplane in the car and expect it to to be in one piece when you go to get it.
1: Yeah. The glue will reconstitute and let. Yep. Yeah. And
2: especially in the high humidity, the, the,
1: yeah, you
2: guys know, No, we know preaching to the preacher.
1: (laughs) Well, we're we're in the (laughs) the Carolinas, so it's nothing but wet over here. It's uh, it's like 95% humidity on a good day.
2: But that being said, there are definitely instances where I think "Eh, foam boards, the right, a tool for the job here, and I'll use it. And now that I've been using the waterproof stuff, same thing. Uh, There's applications where that is precisely what I need for for this project.
0: Exactly. If we ever get um, advanced enough that it's faster and perhaps um, prototyping, like drawing up the parts and figuring them out and then printing them as a thing, maybe cost as part of it too. Do you think that 3D printing could ever be an an option as part of prototyping, or is you just prefer to utilize the the foam? Because it's really coming back to a lot of foam for you, but I'm curious if 3D printing could ever be an option.
2: For what I do, I don't think so. Because, again, if you look at the benefits that 3D printing provides, you can get really complex shapes um, Mm -hmm. without having to sand or to carve or any of that but I'm not usually after complex shapes. I'm usually after right, basic right. design concepts. Okay. But that being said, you know, I know people who 3D print scale models, EDFs and whatever that are just gorgeous that would be really difficult to do any other way. Yeah, And they're willing to invest that design time and the print time and all that to, that it takes to make 3D printing to, to take advantage of the benefits of 3D printing. and. And that's whatever material you're talking about, whatever design process you're talking about, if you recognize and take advantage of whatever particular benefits that method brings, then you're more likely to find success. Okay.
1: So where do you start with your ideas?
2: Um, Usually at 3 in the morning, very sweaty, waking up, and that's it. Fevered dreams. um, (laughs) Right. Um, Gosh. I guess it just depends on the complexity of it, but often it's sketches kind of working out the basic design with a pencil and notepad, just kind of figuring out what am I really after and and how do I want to approach it?
1: Is it more like I want to look or I have a mission? Um, I want to know that's okay. It's, it's what, Uh, what, uh, what idea do I want to solve? Like, what, what yeah, is what this? What the heck? Yeah, what's going on here? Okay. Yeah. Well, it's kind of what the prendle D, that, for, for that project, that was all, I want to understand how to, not only how does this work, right, because I am learned all about it, but it was like, can I make this simply and quickly out of foam board or not? Because this is pretty complex, and if, I think I have a way, and it was testing that concept and that idea. And then say, will it perform the same way? Which was what that was about. So i I've, I guess my point is I I understand um, that that need to figure it out. Um, okay, how do you pick your size of aircraft?
2: And you know, that's probably going to be based on whatever components I have in my scrap. We do right you have there. available. I have parts. this motor. Yeah, you know, at this point I've collected quite a a collection of different size motors. So I don't know if I'm limited by that anymore. Um, But I think you have to ask the questions or I ask myself, is this going to be a one-piece airplane? And for most of my prototype stuff, one-piece is the way to go. Okay. You're not designing wing joiners and all sorts of other stuff. So they tend to be 48-inch wingspan or less, just for the practicality of having a one-piece airplane. It's not too big a footprint Mm. to transport and store. And if I think something that size will effectively test whatever theory it is I'm going after,
0: then sure. Mm -hmm. And like you say, it's a comfortable size to store and and carry around and actually put up in the air.
2: Right. Or if I'm using foam board, the dimensions of that 20 by 30 piece of foam board are a real constraint as well. Yeah, Mm -hmm. they
1: become.
0: That
2: often factors into it.
1: Yeah, designing the 92-inch wingspan plane was very much like Okay, how can I get this on three sheets of foam board? Yeah,
0: that kind of thing. You can't because that's only ninety inches. Yeah, how do I make
1: it the two inches in between? <laughs> do I put in the fuse anyway? Uh, I, I may be mistaken on ninety-two inches because it did fit on three, three almost exactly, mm-hmm. and so I think it was actually more like eighty-six inches. But it was it was big. It's awful right. big. And
3: okay.
2: You know, as we talk about this, it's popping in my head that, you know, we talked before about how there's such parallels between what we do in model aviation and then careers in engineering, or I guess probably any sort of professional career. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about here, using the limitations of raw material and then the practicality of the finished product to base our design, those are everyday problems that people work with in their careers yeah i want to build this widget well what is the raw material like and how does that limit me
1: what do i have available? what i'm
2: going to do with it i have to ship it across the globe what size box can i fit a dozen of these in and put on Mm a you know a container that gets on a ship and how do i maximize that volume that's that's the stuff we're talking about here and that's the stuff that people deal with
1: yeah yeah the constraint shipping constraint is how big is my car and how much do I want to <laughs> take it apart to, to put it, to put it back together at the field? Like how much right. time mm-hmm. do I want to spend to before and after I transport? And if I don't want to, then that limits, you know, it's the same kind of thing. We, I, I worked in uh, wind farm stuff for a little bit and transporting those blades and the columns that the wind, wind turbines sit on, mm. they are maxing out the constraints of the U.S. DOT system.
2: So you're the reason there's no balsa anymore.
1: Yep. No, and I used to be. Uh, I'm not anymore. I
2: hold you personally
0: responsible.
1: <laughs> I wish they would use some other material. I am. <laughs> I am
0: not making that connection. I'm sorry. Uh, the
1: airfoils that they design are made from. They use balsa, and a big a big part of the the actual turbine blades.
2: Really. Yep. So, supposedly, the the turbine business takes a large portion of the yearly crops of balsa.
1: Which is why it's very hard to get now. I feel like a
0: dummy for not knowing that. My apologies. No, that's
1: quite all right. <laughs> uh, if you weren't involved in that at all, or going, hey, why does this balsa cost so much? To the right person who knows, uh, you would have no idea. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've I've driven many a time behind both of those items, and they are massive, and they are barely fitting yeah. under every bridge they ever go under.
2: Um, so I imagine at some point early in the design stage, they said, "Well, this yep. is the limit we have to work with. So maybe one twice that big would
1: be more efficient." Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, absolutely it. Until they can figure out how to three D print one in in situ <laughs> right. at the field, uh, we won't we won't know. I'm sure yeah. Speaking comment.
2: of, did you know there's three D printers on the space station now
1: to make stuff? Um, I was going to ask you. Did you know that they're three D printing rockets? Uh, yeah. They're center yeah. 3D printing rockets and iterating it and sending another one the next week into orbit, which yeah, blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. Jeez. That's so neat. What are they printing out in space?
2: Uh, I don't really know. They're, from what I've heard, um, there is one on the space station. They need a widget. They send the files. Uh, they transfer the files up. They, just, they print it. Nice. And I would imagine there's some differences printing stuff in zero gravity. So I'd imagine. I don't, but yeah, I don't
1: well, know. I'm trying to think, like, I don't you gotta think the, the material is basically squished onto the next the layer below it and yeah, but it, it fuses there. And then once it's well, attached through the heat, once it cools, it's a solid piece and it shouldn't be going anywhere.
0: The, the only year, thing I could say on that would be that while yeah, we're squeezing it onto even as we're squeezing it down onto there is a down there is a gravity element to it coming out of that nozzle it may not be significant but that's got to come into factor somehow i'm sure
1: i'm sure it definitely prints different your settings are far different in space i'm sure than they are on the ground yeah space makes everything harder so i don't know how that
2: applies here but i i can't I can't believe that it's the same
1: or easier in space I'm sure. to 3D print something. We'll see. <laughs> okay. So. Well, okay. So when you're looking at your design, <clears throat> one of the things I wanted to know, like, if you're designing at a Balsa, it always seems to me the Balsa planes are set up like they pick an airfoil, you know, and then they size mm-hmm. that airfoil based on whatever geometries they've got going on. I don't know if that's actually how it's designed or if that's happenstance or if it's based on, because we're basing it on this model, but you've seen so many balsa, like, flying bird models or some flying wing that really isn't based off any known plane. They're just testing an idea. Right. Do you do that? Like, do you pick a an airfoil?
2: No. And it goes back to, I guess, the core of this, that if I thought the just perfect airfoil was going to impact the learning part of this, then yes, I would go through that process of picking just the right airfoil. But typically, pretty much any airfoil is going to work to make that airplane fly and prove the thing I was trying to prove. So the airfoil is not an important factor of what I'm doing. So So the simplest
1: version of an airfoil that you can get with that material would be it.
2: So the parallax is a piece of six millimeter thick foam on the bottom with a carbon rod spar. And then the top of the airfoil is three millimeter foam just bent over the spar. And yeah. the, the shape you get out of that, that that's the perfect airfoil. <laughs> so. Okay. That makes sense. So, And it, there's just so much latitude in what we do with design constraints and airfoils and all that, that for most of us and for most of what we do with sport flying and all that, I don't think just the right airfoil is really a factor. Now there are certainly some high-performance type things, and there are areas of the hobby where mm-hmm. you definitely get better performance by optimizing the airfoil. But if you gave me two gliders and said this one has this wing, this other one has another airfoil, tell me which one you like better in a blind taste test, I probably would not be able to tell the difference. Okay. I'm not that calibrated for it, and <laughs> it, yeah, I think you—it takes a very special type of airplane with a very special type of pilot to get that sort of granularity.
1: OK, matter. I think that's that's interesting to hear and interesting, you know, to think about, because I think we when you're looking at, at at what scale does that seem to start playing a factor? Obviously, when you get in the full scale, you're trying to eke out every efficiency you can, it seems. But at, at what point does an RC model really need to pay attention to like what NACA uh Designation are we using for our airfoil? I know for the Prandtl D, it's important that in the inside it's like a Clark Y, and then the outside it's symmetrical and twisting like ten mo, you know, ten mothers.
2: Right, that's the core of that particular design philosophy. So yeah, exactly. without that, you're not really testing the thing you went out to test. Exactly, so, but otherwise, yeah, I think that's a good example.
1: Yeah, it's a good example. I know I'm looking at a couple other planes like the Mara and the Marabu, which. Their airfoils change and are very specific, especially the angles of attack. Um, They, but it's and they kind of run on a similar principle. Um, Okay, so so if you don't really use the airfoil, then uh, what is the one you tend to go to?
2: Um, typically just a flat bottom, again, whatever is kind of easy to make. Yeah. Clark Y ish. Anyway, a Clark Y is a very specific flat bottom airfoil. It is. If you're talking about that. But yeah, I think it's often used interchangeably with flat bottom, curvy top, um, sort of <laughs> thick. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm going for most of the time. Every now and then, like with this kite-like airplane, just a plank wing is fine
1: or a flat bottom piece of foam. Uh, whatever it takes. Okay. Um, let's see here. Let me look at my list again. I've got some more. And and again, we're going to get into the parallax in about a second here. Um, it's specifically how you design the parallax. Um, so, so I guess the clockwise what most RC people use, I guess, because flat bottom makes for untwisted wings when building it on a table. So I figured that's probably why most people select it. Um, Joe, are you waiting for your questions for the parallax? Should I just
0: get uh, to it? <laughs> no, it's it's fine. Um, uh, now you threw. I me. did because I, I do know it you, all the time. I know you've got that. <laughs> I know you got that sitting there like Dude, I want you to ask a question, Joe. And I'm just kind of <laughs> letting you go through these. Okay. and it's not about just get to it. It's, um, yeah, I I worry that uh, maybe we are asking the same question from diff, maybe from perceiving to be asking the same question from different angles. And it's all coming back to the, Admittedly, the it's, same answer for Terry. They,
1: well, yeah, they are. But um, I mean, knowing that that's the same answer to me, that tells me stuff that tells me that all these things that people worry about, because all of those things are people I've heard. I've heard questions. People ask questions. Oh, do we, which airfoil do I need to use? Or what size of this? And what, you know, like, the fact is, it doesn't really matter. I mean, whatever works for you for now, who cares? Truly, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't have to be okay. the exact airfoil that Horton used. But you should know that if you do Clark Y, twist up the end a little bit, and it'll probably fly like a, fly like a Horton wing. Mm. <laughs> you know? um, well, anyway, so my, this... my question before we get in was like, how do you pick a motor and prop? Like, how do you size that? When you're making your airplanes. Uh,
2: you, um, I, most of the time I'm using some sort of combination I used on another model where there was an ARF that had a similar setup or a previous model that I built. Um, every now and then I'll come up with something new, but a lot of my testing is done with online calculators. Okay. Which I think are a lot of fun to play with. Um, they're estimators. I, I sure. shouldn't say calculators, I should say estimators. Um, those are fun. You'd, Put different props in there and different battery combinations. You kind of guess or what's going to work for you. Okay. Uh, but until you actually put this parts together and run it up, you don't really know for sure. Uh-huh. And I've had instances where there are pretty big deltas between what was predicted and what I found.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, do you use um, a watt meter to confirm all that? Oh, you betcha. Okay. So any uh, electric flyer
2: who doesn't have a watt meter is... Waiting for
1: yeah. an accident to happen. <laughs> waiting for so. to burn up a bunch of ESCs yep. <laughs> or burn they, up a motor. I, it,
2: yeah, or, or all of the above. So they're cheap enough now. Even the knockoffs on Amazon, I think, are around 15 bucks. That, that's and what I just got mine for.
1: It's a wattmeter, yeah, too. It measures the energy going from your battery into the system, basically.
2: Yeah. If you're flying oh, only ARFs okay. with the stock power system, I can accept that you don't need one then, but if you're doing any sort of tweaking with different propellers or different batteries or, or whatever, a watt meter will pay for itself very quickly. Mm-hmm. And and stuff that you're not burning up.
1: <laughs> All you have to do is not burn up an ESC once, and you pay for it.
3: Right,
2: and not to advertise myself, but one of my columns, it might have even been my first column, talks about the value of a watt meter for that very reason. Mm-hmm. It's information you need to have if you're going to experiment. Okay. And All the times I hear also, people say this plane comes with a three channel, but it's not fast enough. Or excuse me, it comes with a three cell battery. I want it to go faster. Let me just throw in a four cell, not change anything else, and not really understand the implications that a change like that can have. So a watt meter tells you that very quickly, I'll let you know if you're going to blow something up.
1: Okay. Um,
0: as I've not got any experience with them, let's see if we can uh, between now when we release, uh, see if we can find that articles so we can include it in the show notes. It, it might
1: be online. It is so model aviation, I, I like, uh, knowledge, knowledge watt wattmeter done.
0: Look at that. I, I typed in a, note.
1: Knowledge is power. Why you need a wattmeter. Hmm. Here it is.
0: Look at that so fast. Well, speaking about the calculators and the wattmeter and all, um, I mean, at this point, you've got a selection of motors and a selection of props. And I've only... Like, I understand with that you got a little bit of a swing in the size of the prop and you got some swing in the pitch angle. And I understand, like, okay, increase the pitch, like, sure, you're biting more, but you have the power to push it and power to swing it. And, but how are you picking a prop? Like, what, what goes, what aspects or what factors go into picking a prop for your motor and your design that you're, that you're trying out?
2: Um, I wish I could give you a solid answer on that. You know, most of the just, time it, Go ahead
0: No, I was just going to say, where's it? Slap a 9 by 4 or 5 on it, what a rip
2: um, <laughs> A lot of times Yeah, that would be the answer Like I know I used a 9 45 on this before <laughs> so let's start with that and see where it goes and after flying it maybe I need a little more speed so I up the pitch or maybe I drop the diameter and up the pitch if I want to keep the amp draw the same It just kind of depends on what I'm going for but as kind of going back to the, the theme of this conversation, most of the time, peak performance is not what I'm going for. So if, right, if the right. first prop works well enough, I'm probably just going to stick with that prop. Or if I have six of them in the drawer, yeah, okay, let me stick with those. In case <laughs> I break one, I got a backup.
1: Yeah, I, I might need so, a couple. So So let's use this one.
2: Yeah, there are definitely people out there who want to get every watt they can out of a motor, every mile an hour they can out of a setup, and they're going to do a lot more tweaking and experimenting okay. with their motor setups. Yeah, that's not me. Uh, typically I'm just making sure that my the amps don't exceed what the motor or the battery or the ESC are capable of so I'm not going to break anything and I'm making sure I'm not overheating. So just making sure mm-hmm. everything is operating within its limits. And outside of that, there's a lot of latitude for for what I do, which would probably be considered sport flying by most people.
1: Okay. Mm. Uh, now you we've been talking a lot about watts and that tends to go with electric motors. Do you tend to stick with electric motors or do you go between that and gassers?
2: I'm almost exclusively electric and I have to say almost now because I had a gasser up until recently. I gave that to Fitz, so it's now in Texas. Yep. Um, but Is that a little Cox 449? No, no, a, a 30cc gasser. Okay, like nice. Real one. gasoline. Yeah. Um, but only recently I've gotten back into the half A glow stuff that I had as a kid. Okay. I found a new in box Cox PT-19, which is the one that I talked about my first airplane forever mm-hmm. ago. Um, I'll never fly that. I found it basically untouched from the 70s. Um, so that's my... That's the one I put under the special lights on the mantle. Um, but I've also found some other more used Cox 049 planes from that era that I'm not afraid to start up and run. I haven't done it yet, but I've got a little collection brewing, so I'm hoping to rekindle Ooh, my youth yeah. with, with some of this
1: stuff. That'll be fun. I'm, I'm sure that'll turn I into some so. articles that will be enjoying um, to read.
2: <laughs> quite possibly. At the very least, you'll hear about it on the podcast.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to that, too.
2: Well, good. So, yeah. The thing that I'm most curious about is when I go to fly control line again on 30 foot lines, if here, 30, 40 years later, if I can still handle the, yeah, the RPMs of my head.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, if your uh, inner ear can handle that. I know you're age right. doesn't treat that well. <laughs> right. Okay, so let's, ta- let's start talking about, uh, we're going to talk about the parallax specifically. Now, why okay. don't you talk to our listeners about what the parallax is?
2: In a nutshell, it is a single-motor asymmetric airplane. So is the and
1: fuselage set to one side?
2: Well, what part are you calling the fuselage? So, yeah, that would be the biggest. I guess it's asymmetric and gosh, several senses. So the, the impetus of this design goes back to I like to read about aviation history like mm-hmm. you guys do. The Germans had a design during World War II called the Voss uh, BV-141, which was a reconnaissance plane that was single engine. So it had a fuselage with an engine on it. But separate of that, it had a pod off on the right where the crew compartment was. So okay. it, it's, it looks like it shouldn't fly or it looks like it should only fly in circles to the right. Nothing about it makes sense. And it bugged me for so long that I couldn't understand how that thing ever got off the ground, how it flew straight, how it did what it did. But by all accounts, it was a, a great flying airplane. And so I committed myself. And I think, gosh, this probably between 10 and 15 years ago. I sat down with a three-view drawing of that BV-141, and I said, I'm not getting out of this chair till I figure out why this thing at least flies. <laughs> yeah. And in doing that and comparing how they laid out the wing and kind of where the motor was for the middle of the, the, the thrust line and this and that and the other, I came up with some theories. And based on that, I took an airplane that I already had that flew well, and I said, I'm going to make this asymmetric like a BV-141. Already, I already know how this airplane flies. I'm used to it. I know its characteristics and traits. So I'm going to make this modification to it. And maybe by doing that, I can understand... How being asymmetric affects the an airplane that I know. Maybe by doing that, I can understand how to design an asymmetric airplane. Okay, and so that's what I did. The, the airplane was a really simple. It was the Hobbyco Red Hawk, which I don't think you can find them around anymore. But it was a really simple V-tail foam wing uh, plane from gosh, I don't know. I guess the turn of the century era. It came with a speed four hundred brush motor. I bought a bunch of pieces for them when Tower Hobbies was clearing them out and you could buy a wing for a dollar. And I must have bought 20 of the wings just to have for projects like this.
1: Okay, that almost looks like um, like a really simple, hold on, I'm just trying to see if we've got the right, it's like a pot and boom kind of yep. uh, FT Explorer.
2: Yeah, I'm trying to think of a modern day equivalent and yeah, an Explorer would probably be the closest so, yeah, the,
1: except it's like uh, if you were to put a, an arrow shaft instead of that, the box bar.
2: Yeah. So, just a simple airplane with no frills, um, but a pretty good flyer. And I took that and made my BV 141 replica of it. And the darn thing flew right off the bat. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, I understand here. And the whole gist of it was that most airplanes, most single engine airplanes with a, Clockwise turning propeller have a little bit of right thrust put in the motor mount. And that helps counteract the the P factor and the torque and the twisting spiral that all the things that make an airplane want to turn to the left
1: mm-hmm, when they have right.
2: a So the B V one forty one accomplishes those same things by putting the motor a little bit to the left of the center line of the airplane. Okay. That's and the it's the gist of it. It's make
1: it's a, it's just enough to counteract that all those factors you just talked about
2: yes so it does pretty much the same thing but in a different way okay and so there were still some things i didn't quite understand like you've got this uh, crew compartment off to the side right and yeah so man that must be a lot of drag sitting out there how does that not make it want to turn that way too wouldn't
1: and, wouldn't that balance out the drag from the fuselage
2: well, not necessarily, or at least not in my head, because the fuselage has, that's where the engine's pulling it, right? So that, that drag is on what I thought was the center line. So it seemed like you had this big, huge thing sticking out there, right? Off on the right. Yeah. And then I looked at some pictures of Corsairs that flew, I guess these were probably late World War II or maybe Corsairs that flew in Korea. And they were night fighters that had radar. And they put these huge bulbous things. Pods out on the end of one of the wings. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's kind of the same thing. You've got this huge source of drag way out on the wingtip. Why did that not make this Corsair go nuts? Right. And then I read another story about the old uh, Aero Commander, which was a twin engine uh, civilian plane that actually Horizon made an ultra micro model of it, the twin Aero Commander. And when they were getting that airplane certified, I think it was in the 1950s. They had to fly an example up to the FAA headquarters in Washington, D.C., and as a publicity stunt, they took off, flew cross-country from, I forget where it was, maybe it was Wichita, uh, all the way to D.C. on one engine. So they had an engine way off the center line. They had this whole fuselage and other engine causing all this drag. So how the heck did that work? Right. And so my lesson in all these examples was maybe the drag just doesn't matter. So let's just, let's build an airplane. Let's ignore the drag and see what happens. And so that's how the Parallax was born. I decided I had a fair enough understanding of how asymmetry would affect the model that I was going to take those concepts and push them to the most extreme degree to make an airplane that looked like it should never get off the ground, but flew kind of normally. So I had this Mm -hmm. single pod Off to the left, I had a crew compartment looking thing. Off to the right, I decided, what the heck, let's go ahead and make the wing asymmetric too and make it swept, but each side is a different length. And that was inspired Mm -hmm. by the Rutan boomerang, which is another popular asymmetric plane. Mm -hmm. So I took cues from both of those and put them together and it did not fly. Oh, actually my prototype was a canard as well. I decided to go one step further and being unique. And I incorporated all those design elements and also made it a canard. And <laughs> my, pro- my prototype did not fly, at least not initially. It took a lot of tweaking and a lot of test glides, a lot of tall grass. And eventually I kind of honed in on the different balance adjustments and the little tweaks here and there. And the size of the horizontal stabilizer, excuse me, the vertical stabilizer, Mm -hmm. the angle of the canard, all these little different things that my experience with other models helped me to watch what was happening on these test glides and these test flights and make one tweak at a time. So I knew the effect of each thing. And eventually I checked off all the problems on the list of this thing. And within a couple of weeks, I had an airplane that flew and
1: ended up flying pretty well. Okay. Did you calculate, at any point, did you calculate the lift from the wing on either side of the propellered fuselage? Or the center of mass, I guess, would probably be the more appropriate spot. Tell tell us which spot is the spot.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So it's all kind of an optical illusion. The actual center line of the wing is a spot just to the right of that long fuselage that has the motor.
1: Mm-hmm. It's basically and like a so, tiny trainer with an lopsided uh, horizontal stabilizer is what it, the part with the on, on the parallax with the propeller. Yeah. And then there's like, um, what is it, 7337, three, three, seven, a Cessna 337
2: pod? Yeah, but no motors on it. No, it's, no it's, motors it's on it's, that pod.
1: Yeah. And yeah. sticking on the apex of a wing. That it's like a... Arrow. If you were to take a P 38 sort of. and take off one <laughs> boom in the wing on the other side, on one side, and just it, but it being a like a swept back P 38 somehow, that's what yeah. you have. That's yeah, what a parallax I, It's is. kind
2: of hard to explain. I think you. We'll, we'll have a picture Google in the show it. notes and, yeah.
1: and look it up. Look up parallax and Terry Dunn, and you'll see the picture.
2: It's funny that you mentioned the P 38 because once I had some experience with the parallax and kind of felt like I knew a little more about asymmetry, like, hmm. I should take an off-the-shelf P38 model and lop have, off one of the wings and, and the like, boom, make that pic- into some sort of unorthodox asymmetric and then come up with this <laughs> weird altered history backstory about how saboteurs <laughs> blew up the, the Allison plant in Detroit and they only had left-turning Allison engines, so they had to make the P-38 single engine. Um, <laughs> I'm that keeping that great. one in my back pocket for a rainy
1: day. Okay. But, um, well, I'm looking forward to seeing that if that happens.
2: <laughs> well, I got to make it work first. Um but I think the takeaway from all this is really that as crazy as the Parallax is, it's really just a combination of all the basic design elements that go into an airplane like the Tiny Trainer, something that looks simple. and It's really just a combination of all that stuff. Just like a 747 is a combination of, what is it, seven simple machines? I'm too far away from school. but. It, <laughs> Any complex machine is just a combination of simple machines. Yeah. So a complex airplane is just a combination of simple aerodynamic principles, sometimes more than others. Yeah, Um, right. So, again, the the parallax was just my concept of how to take these strange concepts, stretch them to the extreme, and still have a, a normal flying airplane. So it took some iterations to get there. But
1: eventually, that's where it landed. When you, when you say some iterations, what kind are we mm. talking about?
2: Um, adjusting the center of gravity, um, changing the size of the vertical stabilizer. Um, the canard provided a little bit of trouble for me because canards are kind of a special beast because they're mm. not just a stabilizer. They're actually a lifting surface. Right. That you have to calculate the area and, and they move the angle where, of that. They move
1: and, the where everything is and, yeah, what angle it's at changes how much it lifts a lot. Yeah, so
2: there, yeah, a simple change moving that surface from the back to the front that adds a lot of complexity to a model. So my advice coming out of that would be if you're working on a new design that doesn't require a canard to do whatever concept you're doing, forget it. Introduce that in version two or something. <laughs> um, and so yeah, I did get the canard version flying and felt like I had some confidence in it. And then just out of curiosity, I'm like, well, let me make a, a version with a normal horizontal stabilizer in the back. And that one flew great right off the bat. So all the subsequent versions had a normal the horizontal stab in the tail. Okay. Um, I still have my canard prototype here behind me, but okay. I should probably get it out and fly it and remind myself how that <laughs> one flies compared to the others.
1: Yeah, right. Uh, so w- w- usually people choose a canard because canards – they almost can't, um, they can't stall severely because the front wing stalls before the back wing loses lift, which means it starts, the nose starts to drop before the back ever loses lift. And then you basically, it becomes imbalanced for about three seconds while the nose kind of buffets down to level again. And now you're flying like you were before. Yeah. And it's so people love it because you can't really stall this. However, and they also like to float forever, and they mean, need a lot longer of a runway for that yeah. same reason.
3: Yeah,
2: There are definitely designs where a canard is the right answer. And I was working on a thing that, for whatever reason, I moved to the back of my queue. But what is it, the Eagle from Spaceballs, the flying <laughs> RV? <laughs> yeah,
1: I've been wanting to build one of those for a long time now.
2: Yeah, I built a little chuck glider version of it, and that is a case where, because they have the main wing way in the back of this RV, and you'll never get enough vertical stabilizer back there to to work. So putting a canard on that and giving the CG forward, that kind of makes it almost, I wouldn't say practical, but feasible. Um, So instances like that, or a lot of people do X-wing fighters, the same kind of thing. you got a main wing way in the back. you got to compensate for that somehow. So a canard makes sense in those cases. But, uh, again, if you don't have to have a canard, eh, <laughs> you're probably better off
1: without it. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just saying somebody made a, like I took a quadcopter and basically oh, yeah, yeah. So, made a Winnebago on it. That's funny. Yeah. All right. Sorry. And I'll speaking stop.
2: of strange flying things and quadcopters and all sorts of cool stuff, if you're not familiar with Adam Woodworth and the stuff that he builds,
1: you got to check out his stuff. He is a magician. Adam Woodworth, I'll take a look at this here. Uh, and you said it's n-
2: RC. He may have built one of those Eagle Fives.
1: He, he AJW would be yeah. He's the one AJ Woodpiece,
2: I think is yeah.
1: And and his oh, he's the one who did the Lego, the the Lego plane.
2: Yep, yep. Oh uh, yeah, he's been featured on flight test videos before.
1: mm-hmm oh, Okay, yeah. And he did the Winnebago. He was the one who did that okay. Winnebago. Cool. Uh, what well, maybe we'll throw a link to his uh, his YouTube if you want to check it out because there's a lot of a lot of interesting RC stuff there.
3: Yeah, Very
1: he
2: has started with the um, oh gosh I'm going to blank on it now the new Horizon model. It's a flying wing twin motor. Mm, I've got mine over there, but I can't see the box. Nah, <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> but what he does is he pulls the. All the guts out of one of those, and he builds all these different models using the, the electronics out of that. It's amazing all the different stuff he makes and flies with them, and they fly so well. And They're really often odd concepts and science fiction based things. So, Ultrix, that's it. I just had to not think about it. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, there's the regular Ultrix, and there's a new bigger Ultrix. So, he does a lot of experiments with that stuff that you have to go see.
1: Yeah, definitely. There's some, and he loves Star Wars and he loves Legos.
2: Yep. And he knows how to make that stuff fly. He sure and does. He, not to mention he is an ace
1: pilot. <laughs> you have to be with some of the things you're like, how is that? He, he makes it look effortless for sure. Well, cool. Yeah. Well, we'll put a link to his uh, his YouTube channel. Check out some of the things that suit your fancy because you're like, oh, look at that. Um, yep. Good stuff. Um, let's see. So back to Parallax. Parallax. I guess, Joe, do you you have any follow-up questions about the parallax? I
0: mean, mine are more with the yin-yang. Okay. Uh, Because I remember we were talking and I had a couple questions.
1: Well, then let's shift to the yin-yang. So the yin-yang is a very similar look in the sense that there's a sort of a pod and a boom next to each other. The pod has in, in the Yin Yang's case, what a pusher and the boom has a has a tractor. Yep. And then it's got a wing. I can't remember if it's symmetrical or
2: Yeah, it's just a Hershey bar wing with no sweep, no. Yeah. So yeah, pretty nothing, straight.
1: Nothing. But there is a one pushing and one pulling, and it looks on quick glance that this should be doing circles in the sky. Quick little circles. <laughs> yes.
0: Yes, because we'll. The first glance, you're thinking, well, one's pushing, one's pulling, or they're both pulling. So it's gonna. You, you got to wrap your mind around one's pulling and one's pushing, and you got that on the same plane. And all things being equal, they'll they'll pull and push the plane through the. Air.
1: They'll act effectively like a twin boom. Craft. Yeah, that's the idea. Two mo- two motors, causing thrust in the same direction. And that's enough for me, right? Like that should, that creates an easy flying plane.
2: Yep. The cross-sectional area of the pod and the fuselage are exactly the same. So, and like okay. We said it's a Hershey bar wing with nothing crazy about that. It's just, it's almost a sight gag of look at this.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm sorry.
2: No, go ahead. Most people have that same reaction that you do when they see it. Like, wait a minute, how does that work? And then they get it up close like oh okay well that makes sense where Mm. with the parallax people even after they see it fly and they touch it and fold it they're like i still don't get it um with the yin yang it's much less radical and so after you get over that it looks different from any or most other
0: planes it makes sense to most people so i think it's a more approachable project and my questions ended up being more of a the technical side, mm-hmm. where, because I, I can wrap my head around one's pushing, one's pulling. They're both pushing or pulling in the same direction. Ultimately, so it's going to advance through the air and fly. Um, some of my questions then were, uh, on you've got you've got two different airflows happening then on one side of the plane versus the other side of the plane. Mm-hmm. One side is turbulent from the prop prop wash. The other side is going to be more laminar. Um, and I know that's sort of like uh, a million dollar word these days. It's, it's undisturbed flow. It is. There you go. Uh, because the, the prop's in the back. So did, does that change anything in the design? That one, side's ca- one, air, one side of the airfoil is catching dirty air, and the other side's catching cleaner air, and that maybe the prop behind mm-hmm. the wing behind the prop is catching a prop wash? Even though the air is dirty, it's potentially moving faster than the air on the other side because it's being pushed as as opposed to – am I making sense with that question at all? Yep, it makes total sense, and those are things – Or does it just not matter? (laughs) Well, in the
2: end, at this scale with this airplane, it doesn't matter. But I I had all those thoughts beforehand, and then kind of like I – the destination I ended up with, the parallax of not worrying about that drag anymore – you know, I could examine these things. I could probably do some calculations to figure it out. Or I could just build one out of foam board and throw it in the air and see what happens. And see what it does, and, yeah. Right. And that's pretty much what I did. And This one's interesting because the foam board version that I released the plans for was the second iteration of this design. I did one several years ago, not long after I did the parallax, with uh, the different type of foam, hot wire cut wing and the thicker foam. And that was my basic concept. And then I flew that for a while and it kind of sat. Then I decided I wanted to do plans for it. And foam board seemed the most approachable way for other people to build this design. So I adapted Mm -hmm. my original design to foam board. Um, But in terms of the design concept, yeah, I I thought about those potential problems and said, you know what, let's let's just try it see what happens. And it flew fine. So I'm not saying there aren't differences. I'm saying the differences
0: don't seem to matter here. At the scale that we're at, it's not enough to worry about. They don't create a
1: slightly different lift on one side of the plane versus the other creating a general (laughs) left circling tendency like the magician.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. Then, then one more question following that up. And the answer to this one may also be, it doesn't matter. Um, but does that impact the ailerons at all? Um, sort of the...
2: They're very effective. Um, I'm not sure what it is about this airplane that makes the aileron super effective. They're not that big as in terms of percentage of the wing area. But mm-hmm. I've built several of these models. They all have very nice roll response. So I guess the question would be, is the left aileron more effective than the right? Because it has right. prop wash over it. I don't know. I've Good never, <laughs> I've never used only one or the other. Um, so yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Whatever it is, the combination of those factors makes for an airplane that rolls really well. Oh, nice. Fair enough. So yeah, was... if there is asymmetric I... uh, control authority there, I don't know how to tell. It still seems pretty axial and asymmetric yeah, planes like the parallax in this axial rolls are a little bit tough to see because there's no center point all the parts of the fuselage are rotating around the center point anyway.
1: So it's hard to see what's really axial. Right. As opposed to like, uh, pattern planes or, or those where where you're, you're literally watching it spin about an axis that is the rotation point of your propeller. Right. It's clear that it's rotating from tail to tip and it's, you know, going around that point. That point is not obvious (laughs) on (laughs) either of these other planes. Um, which is neat. So did you do any calculations when you're doing the parallax just to see where the CG would be beforehand? Or do you just sort of, again, toss it and hope and move around? No. Um,
2: no. Is I might seem pretty um, relaxed about a lot of this stuff, but that's not really the case with certain factors. I know there's things that matter in every case. Center of gravity is one of those things that matters, and I'm kind of uh, meticulous about figuring that out beforehand in some way or another. You, sometimes I'll build a check glider to test it out or mm-hmm. I'll trace it out. There's online CG calculators, whatever I think is the right way for this particular airplane. Okay. I'll, I'll factor it in. And usually my target for any sort of new design is 25% of the mean aerodynamic cord. Okay. Which is and that gives a, a general a, number for Clark Y type things.
1: Mm-hmm. And that gives it generally a little bit, slightly nose heavy flight tendency. Right.
2: Unless you have a canard on the front, and then throw all that out the window. and Then you
1: then you go to the canard calculator and use that and hope that works. Yeah. <laughs> so you used, a, you used a CG calculator, or did you actually calculate the wing area and figured out what rough lift that would be, or you just let the um, calculator handle that?
2: I don't remember exactly how I did it. But it had to do with the distribution of the area of the wing. And then once you kind of figure out what the mean aerodynamic chord of that wing is, the the rest falls into place. Um, And it wasn't so complex once I sketched it out. I like to use graph paper
1: where you you have all the squares. Mm -hmm.
2: That that helps me visualize
1: things and and work it out in my head. There are so So many squares over here. There's roughly the same amount over here that should balance here. Right. And that's a good strategy
2: that a lot of people use for figuring out CG when they don't want to use a calculator or don't know how you cut the profile out of a piece of cardboard, which is a, a equal distribution of the weight. And then use the weight of the thing to find where the center point is and where the, the mean aerodynamic cord is. So there's a hundred different ways that you can figure this yeah. stuff out. Yeah. But for me, I, I've decided that that's a critical factor in all my designs that's worthy of my investment of time to sort out before I chuck
1: this thing in the okay. air. Nice. Um, a little side piece is when you hooked uh, control arms up, do you like to use, um, uh, what? Uh, why can't I think of the name of the brand, Dubro? Do you use like the Dubro connectors or do you do just like a, like Flight Test uses with this, just a Z-Bend kind of deal? Um Yes, <laughs> okay. That's a simple answer to that. <laughs> um,
2: no, I, I work for Dubro. I do Dubro's social media. So okay. I have a bunch of Dubro stuff here. I've used it for years. So I don't want to sound like a commercial, but oh. I've always liked their stuff, and now I have access to it. So I use it whenever I can. Um, so in something like the Yin Yang or the Parallax, they have Dubro horns on them, mm-hmm. but uh, they don't usually have Dubro clevises on them, only because I tend to make my push rods very simple, very lightweight. So if you look at most of my push rods, most of the time they're like a a 1 16th diameter fiberglass or carbon fiber mm
1: -hmm. rod. Yeah, it looks like a rod with two metal ends.
2: Yeah, like an 047 uh, music wire. Mm -hmm. I'll CA that to the end, wrap it with a little thread, and I'll put a single Z-bend in it. Okay. And it took me a while to, to get comfortable with not making adjustable push rods. But once you've done a few and you kind of know where that Z-bend is going to end up, it's no problem. So mm-hmm. most of my push rods, uh, they're Z-bends on the servo side and the control side. Okay. No adjustment whatsoever other than trim on the servo.
1: Nice. Yeah. One,
0: you know it, The C-duck actually was the first that I've done with only Z-bends. For for that purpose, like normally I like to have the, the wiggle room. Right. Uh, but... And and maybe the shorter distances help uh, be a little more confident with that, mm-hmm. but then just practice. Yeah, um, if you can get it to just two Z bins, you take a you take I guess what I have found to be a failure point out of the equation where I was putting in extra length and then kinking to to take out that extra slot that I didn't need. Right.
2: Yeah, I have a natural distrust of the set screw type push on connectors. Mm. Um, I've never had one fail on me, but I look at it and I'm like, yeah, I don't trust that. And also... I'm
0: glad you haven't had one fail, because they sure failed me. (laughs) Yeah,
1: they slipped
2: on me, too. And But the bigger concern for me is they often sit fairly high above the servo arm, so you're torquing that servo arm a little bit whenever Mm -hmm. you apply pressure. So I had a few servos where you could look and see the servo arm flexing whenever it was trying to push against the control surface.
1: So That was enough for me to switch to Z-Bends. Okay. Interesting. Well, thank you. That makes
0: a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, just one of those people, you know, it's like we're still new. We're using whatever we can find to make a servo horn. Uh, I personally like to use the uh, flossing deals with the holes in them because they're strong enough and they're quick and easy to snip and put in and away you go. Um, But they're not the best, you know.
2: I just did that whole sermon about set screw type connectors on my latest project. (laughs) And there you are. So uh, I'll be hypocritical. Uh, There are times when that's the easy solution and I have them right there. So yeah, use whatever you like and whatever you have. Excellent. Well, good. Thank
1: you for that. So I think uh, Joe, unless you've got a couple more questions, I think I'm out and I'm thinking we're, we're, it's about time to get towards the lightning round. What do you think?
0: Yeah, thank um, basically those were sort of, you covered a lot of stuff, but those were the nitty-gritty questions I had, um, and yeah, so we can head on into the lightning round. Um, Terry, what we're going to do here.
2: Hold on a sec. Do you mind if I summarize, because I'm not sure that the main point I wanted to get across came across. Okay, please. So,
0: yeah, absolutely. I
2: think the the key for, for me and tackling new subjects, and again, for me, it's usually trying to prove something is you have to have a foundation to base all of your decisions on. So if you're new to RC and you're not quite a good pilot yet, or you're not quite a good pilot yet, build those skills first. Build a proven kit. Get an airplane that you get comfortable with and that you feel comfortable piloting and that you can fly in your sleep. Start modifying that. Make one change at a time. See the effect that those modifications have. Get comfortable with that cause and effect type situation. Then you can take all that knowledge, and when you start on a project of your own, you have a foundation to to build off of and to make decisions. I've seen a lot of people who kind of dive into the deep end with designing their own stuff, and when they have a problem, they don't really know which way to turn and, and where to start in resolving those things. So I really think it's important to get that foundation built and, and be comfortable with the basics of RC flying before you get into the the fringe of designing your own stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. That's good advice. All right, so we're going to head on into the lightning round lightning round now. So, Terry, what we do here is Matthew and I are going to kind of rapid fire some questions at you, uh, and the idea is that, you know, first response, first thing that comes to mind, that's what we're answering. My
2: responses may not be as rapid as your questions, but you go ahead. <laughs> that's
1: fair enough.
0: <laughs> Matthew, you want to start us off?
1: Sure. Uh, Terry, sit or stand? Stand. Pinch or
0: thumb? Pinch. Open TX or uh, spectrum or other? Spectrum and other. Okay.
1: Micro, park, or giant scale?
0: Yes. Uh, <laughs> speed or uh, slow slash gliders?
1: Yes. Snow, <laughs> water, pavement, or tall grass?
0: <laughs> I'm sensing a
2: trend here. Yes. All of the above. (laughs) P38 or P61? Ooh, gosh. Uh, I got to go more obscure. P61.
1: Build or fly? Sorry, Joe.
2: Uh, I I sound like a broken record. Yes. They both have great benefits.
0: (laughs) Older or newer? Older. Three-cell, four-cell, or (sighs) six-cell? Uh, if
2: I had to pick one, uh, foreshadow.
1: Foam or balsa.
2: Oh God, that's not a fair question. Uh, foam.
0: Axis <laughs> <laughs> or allies? Oh gosh, allies. Landing here. I or... can hear.
1: Sorry, I can hear fits.
0: Oh, I and know. Lee. <laughs> yeah. like, what,
1: are you, what are you doing? How did you answer that? I know their answers.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Landing so, land here or belly land?
1: uh belly and probably the most important question creamy or chunky
0: (laughs) chunky and if you add marshmallow fluff does it change your answer
1: uh yeah it makes me go to bed (laughs) (laughs) well good congratulations you've made it through the lightning round all right what did i win uh, you uh, won our appreciation and, uh, you know, welcome back on any show that we have. Oh, thank you. Anytime you want to come by and, and uh, talk to us about whatever. I feel like it was a, a cop out to not make
2: decisions in some of those. But, man, you were asking me some tough questions. <laughs>
1: I know. <laughs> I'm glad I haven't had to. Do- Wait, Joe, did
0: I do one of these? Uh, I think we did put ourselves through one. Uh, I think in the year end year end right, episode, the year anyway. Yeah, yeah, I
1: remember it stunk. <laughs> so sorry, Terry. I'm glad you made it through. All right. Well, I think that about wraps it up with us. Uh, Terry, want to thank you once again for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, before we get out of here, and I know we're, uh, Terry, running a little short of time there. Um, did you have anything on your workbench, hobby-related coming up? Um, No, I think if I had to predict
2: what might be on my workbench and that's never a safe bet, it's probably, probably going to be the things that I talked about came in that stash that my friend dropped by. So I'm going to have mm-hmm. to pull a project out of that stack and, and polish it up and get it going. All right, perfect. Okay. So more to come on
0: that. Good. Nice. Well, I know uh, in mine, I've got the, uh, probably a smidgen more to do with the old fogey to get it airworthy again. And then I'll be, switching gears to gluing that wing back on the sea duck and pushing out its nose where it caved in.
1: Uh, um, I swear I'm going to be looking at, uh, I'm sorry, Joe, did you finish? Nope. Go ahead. I've, I thought that I saw those two that were on your list. So I thought I that you were done. Um, I've got the car plane. Um, I'm going to put some servos in. I've got the J 1000. I'm going to hook the electronics up. I've got the P 61. I'm going to start building, uh, as well as mystery plane. Um, and uh, I'm going to get that quickly in the air. Cool. Nice.
2: Now, I feel out of the loop because when you say carplane, I'm not putting it, those pieces look
1: together. Up, look up carplane.com. Okay. I built a scale model of that. Okay. I will. Um, when we're off air, I'll show you the picture. Okay. <laughs>
0: All right. <laughs> well, guys, as always, thank you for tuning in and listening. Terry, thanks for coming on and spending some time with us. If oh yeah, um, always like yeah. to talk about airplanes so you didn't have to twist my arm good <laughs> <laughs> well guys hopefully you've enjoyed uh, listening as much as we've enjoyed having this conversation with Terry as always uh, feel free to reach out to us you can reach us at aviationrcnoob at gmail.com you can reach Matthew at matthew at dot com or you can reach me at joe at dot com uh, you can find us on our facebook page join us in our discord we got the build night coming up so some fun stuff on the horizon but uh, we're gonna go ahead and work on getting out of here Uh, we'll see y'all next time all right
1: see you next time bye terry Bye. bye Terry.